Hi, and welcome to episode of Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. And we're coming to, we're at the conclusion of our rom-com series that we've been talking about. It's February's a very short month, but it feels like we've been doing this for a while. I've been watching a lot of rom-coms just like on my own outside the show. Have you been doing the same? I, I have been too. So I actually discovered when I was telling my wife about the Patreon episode, mm-hmm. I I was, you know, just talking about some of the p- picks that we made and she was like, oh yeah, yeah, I know that one. I know that one. And then I mentioned uh, Rupert Everett in uh, my best friend's wedding. And she mm-hmm. was like, oh, I've never seen that one. And, oh, man. and I was like, oh yeah, that was one of the big ones in my household. And then we started talking and she, it, you know, it's the, it's the funny thing. I always think about because we're the same age, but I'm a younger sibling and she's the oldest sibling. Yeah, and yeah. so like she was really not exposed to any of the kind of rom-coms of the like mid nineties because yeah. she wasn't quite old enough to be seeing them yet. I was dragged to the theater to yep. see all of them because I have a sister who's four <laughs> years older than me and she was like the target audience. Yep. So, so we've been doing a refresher on like we did runaway bride and uh we did we just did like a refresher on that kind of like mid 90s era mm-hmm. that she had missed out on completely i've 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 made her watch you've got mail before but um yeah i think she, i think runaway bride was her favorite from from what we from what I we covered i haven't revisited that in a while and i i and i really liked Runaway bride i mean i we david and i talked about richard gear on, on on our patreon so like i have a, a, a appreciation for richard gear um mm-hmm. i think he's underappreciated actually in in, in, in like a modern sense mm-hmm. um i think julia roberts's reign in that period is also sometimes overlooked nowadays like maybe i don't know it's like she's just and it'll come up in this episode today like she was so like had such a hot streak yeah in that and period. i you know i i went back and and after i finished runaway bride i went back and was looking at letterbox reviews and like the 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 general takeaway seems to be like this is no pretty woman which yeah like the i definitely don't think the romance aspect where it's not it's not as good of a romance as pretty woman but i think it's funnier it's funnier i agree it's just i think it just 100 percent leans into being a comedy um you've got like uh you've got joan cusack kind of doing her thing you've got hector elizondo just absolutely mm-hmm. killing it and like you know anytime he does pop up class you got all the gary marshall like gary supporting marshall, players yeah, yeah um and it's it's just it's a good time it's a there were several times it actually made me laugh out loud but but yeah ultimately i don't the, the romance in that one i don't think <laughs> takes a pretty big leap to buy into <laughs> the romantic aspect of that one but yeah, yeah so it's it's been fun to revisit things and um i've got i've got one i'll recommend you know when we get to the end of the episode i've got one i I like to harp on every year around valentine's day so yeah i wonder what that one's gonna be yeah i mean pretty woman and i love pretty woman to go off the my bride thing i haven't seen i want to revisit my bride but pretty woman's one that i think like well it started off like the the original script was way more dramatic than what Mm -hmm. it became it was like Julia Roberts' character was way less like charming and more mm-hmm. like down in the dumps at the beginning. Like was like basically like doing cocaine mm-hmm. and like a because I think there's a scene <clears throat> there's a scene in the movie now where it's like he Gear walks into the bathroom thinking she's doing drugs. She's just like flossing or whatever. Mm-hmm. And in the original script, that seems like she was actually doing cocaine is what it was. <laughs> and like he's like, you can't do this around me. Like blah blah blah. Uh, and I had a way more depressing ending. Um, but I think that goes with 
to kind of tie into our our whole conversation this month is that like Pretty Woman's an example where where uh um before they made the changes they didn't have the tropes of the rom-com genre and then once they added those tropes it became a rom-com and so mm-hmm. i guess that asked the question thomas what we've we been talking about kind of with this genre for these past few weeks what are we the tropes the themes what are we seeing um yeah so i mean i think ultimately you've got a lot of the basic tropes are kind of that we've you've got some sort of meet cute uh, and, and you know a lot of it, like we said, kind of dates back to the the screwball era. Um, kind of like a meet cute. A lot of times, it's like an opposites attract. You know, we we don't get along. Um, yeah. And you've got, as we talked about on the Patreon episode, you got to have like a funny comedic relief best friend yeah. role. Uh, <laughs> our our subject today does that a lot. Does Usually a has lot. a lot of those. Yeah, he does. Um, and then there's usually a kind of like some some for some reason they fall apart at the midpoint and yeah. then they have to come back together again and then someone has to make a big speech yep. and as as we've talked about it's it's all kind of the stuff you know if you really want to see the tropes boiled down just watch like a, a hallmark christmas movie because yeah. that is just like you know when, when people write those they just have like the 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 beats of a rom-com written up on the wall in front of them and they just go boom 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 and that's why it's become kind of such a such a joke of like she's from the big city and she's yeah. a career woman and she's sent to a small town and she meets this farmer and they don't get along and yeah. um you know it's 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 all kind of built in there and and the ones that we are talking about this month are, are ones that kind of recognize and play with those tropes but the the mm-hmm. tropes still that's that's you know that's part of a genre tropes aren't necessarily a bad thing it's just yeah. something you have to understand and hopefully kind of do, put your own flavor on it yeah, and once we talked about this month, or we have felt at least that they, if they go into the tropes, hit le- they, they, the, the tropes they, like they're good. If that makes sense, like mm-hmm. I had a friend, she was watching, uh, I think it was Your Place or Mine on Netflix. I had I had several people actually reach out to me about this movie, surprisingly, but I haven't watched yet. I'm, I'm not sure if I will, but like <laughs> I, I, I'll bring we'll bring this up more of kind of the current state of the rom com, but like. Someone said they were watching it, and I was like, "Is there a big final speech at the end?" They're like, "Of course there is," and like, mm-hmm. I, I think that's like when Harry Met Sally has that. We talked about that where Billy Crystal runs and does his big speech. Um, Steve Carell has his big speech at the end, and there's always the big speech moment where someone uh, specifies why they're in love with someone or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting about we'll talk about today with richard curtis is that he does that um always in a very climactic or or, or kind of epic way sometimes yeah um but sometimes one of the most iconic ones yeah, yeah i think he has like i think he has two iconic ones basically but mm. i think he what he does and this might also be just a hugh grant type thing i'm saying is like the idea of someone doing the big speech it not working the person goes and realizes how they screwed up again and they go back and like do their big speech does that make sense mm-hmm. it's like, like both people kind of get their big speech moment or whatever about it mm-hmm. um that, that, that doesn't always happen um and i think uh he just they, they both he does them well and a lot of movies we've done this this uh 
month. They've like I, we talked about wedding singer last week, David and I, and like how Sandler, it's a song and not a and not a speech. It's a, it's mm-hmm. the song he writes for a Drew for a for Drew Barrymore's character. Um, but yeah, you have the best friend. You have how this rom com can be kind of a launching pad for young stars a lot of the time, and then you go into different phases where it's just movie stars uh, playing these roles. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, but we'll we'll kind of continue to discuss this 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 episode because this episode we're kind of tackling a a behemoth of the genre. It feels like I know we've talked we've discussed Nora Ephron before in the past. We've discussed Nancy Myers. Um, but there's essentially kind of a male version coming over across the pond, um, with the rom-com genre and that's Richard Curtis. And so I feel like Thomas, again, you're saying you grew up in the late nineties with rom-coms. You kind of can't like, uh, if you're talking about the, the, the pinnacles of, of rom-coms in that era, you kind of can't turn away from or miss Richard Curtis and his Mm -hmm. films. So what's kind of your thoughts on, Curtis, I guess coming into this, like what what's your history of Richard Curtis, Thomas? As, as, as the, as I, the... I always like to say it, and you've heard me say this, is like Richard Curtis's movies always end up being better than they have any right to be. Yeah. Uh that that was something I kept saying when when the trailers for yesterday were coming on and everybody was kind of like, What what is the this what a crazy story? And mm-hmm. I was like, Hey, he, he made about time and that movie should not have worked, but it did. It did and, yeah. you know, uh, love actually, it works regardless <laughs> of what your thoughts are, on, you know, on it are for the, for the most part it works. And, um, so he was one I was aware of because of love. Actually, mm-hmm. we actually, my family were not big on my mom had seen four weddings and a funeral, like before, yeah. because it like predated my sister getting into rom-coms. And I remember when my sister was getting into rom-coms and we were like starting to rent them from the video store. I remember her picking that one up and my mom being like, you won't like that one. It's weird. Um, <laughs> which I, I guess is like the dry British humor, which the funny thing now is my parents are the only people I know with like a Brit box subscription. And that's like <laughs> exclusively what they watch yeah, is yeah. Brit box programming. But at the, at the time, she uh, I think it was the dry British humor that she didn't care for. But um, but yeah, so L- Love Actually was the first one that kind of took over our household. Uh, and and then, you know, Bridget Jones, my, my we were into. But but then I think it was really, you know, I just was always kind of like, oh, yeah, those are like guilty pleasure movies. Mm-hmm. And then I think when he dropped about time i was like wow this guy this guy really knows what he's doing <laughs> um and i liked i liked pirate radio when it came out that was one that i kind of yeah i, I heard a lot of people compare it to kind of like cameron crow mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff so i bought it on dvd like right after it, it yeah it hit dvd um so yeah i've always always been a fan and it's been fun to kind of once again as when you do these director deep dives it completely opened my eyes to some of his patterns and yeah and tropes within his own films and and i i made some pretty interesting discoveries i think i'm gonna i'm, I'm very curious to see if if there's two in particular i'm very curious oh, to see if they struck you yeah interesting um there is one thing i thought of but we'll, we'll wait as we get into it yeah because you text me like yo i want to see I noticed I had a big revelation mm-hmm. when watching. I don't know which movie you watched uh, that prompted the revelation. Um, we were like, I want to see if you could see it, and I was, I was like, what? what? I was talking about David. I was like, what's it? What's it? What's the thing he found out? What's what's he gonna look at? And I, I figured out something, and I was like, I wonder if this is gonna be it because I was like, kind of just talking through some of the stuff. I go, oh, this is interesting. Um, 
but um but yeah i i've kind of been i mean i feel like notting hill was a big movie for like my family like I, mm. I, that was definitely a rental not long after it came out honestly and my my mother my mom loves hugh grant and and who doesn't because they should all everyone should love hugh grant um and that kind of period of like notting hill like two weeks notice uh music and lyrics like all those kind of rom-coms that he did post notting hill as well um but yeah notting hill i i came to four weddings and a few a little bit later because that was like the rated r rom-com mm-hmm. was the thing so that came that later uh love actually i discussed we did a patreon episode david and i on love actually because because david is not a big rom-com fan and he's kind of turned around a little bit on these uh this past pretty much the past mm-hmm. four or five months and we had watched love actually and it's like he's like yeah it's crazy it's kind of like it's 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 it has a whole lot of love in it but like it's it somehow works and like it, yeah. it, you, you 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 feel emotional about it and yeah i think it's something you know obviously we're a genre podcast but i think it it for all these people that can that can you know film buffs that can buy into like here's how horror works here are the tropes yeah. in, in horror films here are the tropes in like all these genres it's like you can't fault rom-coms if they're mm. done well you can't fault them for for doing the same thing like every genre has tropes every genre yeah. does that the whole point is just to do it well and there's bad rom-coms out there but there's also bad horror movies out yeah. there and bad sci-fi movies out there yep. so there's bad you, know, you just gotta you just there, gotta embrace it there's bad uh prestige movies or whatever mm-hmm. we're gonna go for the oscar but yeah it's like when when we were again our friend group around here we we're watching movies and david was kind of mentioning to our the the women in our in our, our friend group about like movie uh, rom-coms he was looking for basically everyone's like oh you have to watch notting hill you have to watch four weddings and a funeral you have to watch um uh my big fat greek wedding not richard curtis but still a good rom-com um and it, it's just funny how like curtis and 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 there will be kind of crit- critiques i have some friends that are like this like yeah like he I don't like that he went and did all these kind of sappy rom-coms and he was like the leader of of kind of subversive British television in some way mm-hmm. with Black Adder and um and these other shows that he did in the 80s and 90s. And so, and we'll talk about that I think with the tall guy of of kind of that weird balance between mm-hmm. the two. Um but it's weird to kind of see how he went from that kind of TV subversive like almost like the 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 successor to monty python yes way. exactly mm-hmm. um and then turning around and making movies all about love and a very uh almost all his movies are very hopeful and optimistic about love for the most part there's his movies don't have a lot of pessimism is the thing yeah um even when they don't really work out for certain characters there's always optimistic stuff i also would say too uh I mean, this is, seems very typical and, and not surprising. His films are very British, is the thing. Like mm-hmm. all of his films are very, but there's always that kind of weird, like American that's coming, like with Julia Roberts, Notting Hill, or Jeff Goldblum, weirdly in the Tall Guy, but or Rachel McAdams and About Time. Like, uh, there's, I mean, yeah, there's always that weird kind of British and American. Like he, he, I think he, Curtis is someone that he is kind of the British storyteller that has somehow like made its way into the American mainstream. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? It's like, there's a lot of British filmmakers that 
most Americans have no clue who they are, no matter what genre it is. But Richard Curtis is one where like his very British movies, I think because he has a little bit of some something American in them, have translated well for the most part to mm-hmm. American audiences. Um, if that be again, British, even though Renee Zellweger like she plays British in the movie with her, this Americanized character, this, this American actress, Julia Roberts, this American actress, um, Andy McDowell, this American actress, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, this American actor, and, and both at rock. Like, there's always this, like kind of one American character or actor or character that kind of like makes that transition a little bit easier for audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into a lot of his movies today. Uh, we're diving line list movies today. So, so yeah, let's, let's go into kind of a little bit of Richard Curtis early life. And I think this first sentence might blow your mind, Thomas. Mm. Richard Curtis was born on November 8th, 1956 in Wellington, New Zealand. Oh, thought you were going to say America. I, I was going to say, not, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. I did not know he was not actually from England. I, yeah, I did uh, not either. Curtis was the son of Glennis and Anthony Curtis. Anthony was a Jewish Czechoslovakian refugee who fled to Australia at the age of 13. Uh, he would eventually grow up to become an executive at a major consumer goods company called uh, Unilever, uh, a major company mm-hmm. that's still in operation today. Uh, yeah. Because of this job, Richard and his family lived in several different countries during his early childhood years including Sweden and the Philippines. Uh, the family would not move to Great Britain until Richard was 11 years old. In the 1970s, when Richard was in high school, he joined, well, high school. They had different terms over there with, with all the schooling. Uh, I'm going to say mm-hmm. high school for, for American Primary audiences. and whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, he joined the editorial team of his school's weekly newspaper. Curtis said that his time at the magazine was where he learned that all the, all the skills that made him a sketch writer he did reviews, comment pieces, and funny articles where he tried to conjure something out of nothing. After graduating, he ended up at the University of Oxford, and during this time, during his time here, Curtis would meet one of his most important collaborators, Rowan Atkinson. Mm. Now, while Curtis was studying literature, Atkinson was studying electrical engineering. Oh, yes, and, of course. Yeah, and would actually like start work on his PhD at one point as they as they were still as they started doing drama together uh <laughs> curtis and, A- and atkinson would join the script writing team that was part of the experimental theater group uh, a dramatic society at oxford curtis would serve as both a writer and actor alongside rowan atkinson during their time at the oxford review together they had a kind of a breakthrough perform- performance at the edinburgh edinburgh film or Edinburgh Festival Fringe is what it was called mm-hmm. um, yeah. as part of the Ox Review. Um, yeah, that's during... still a really prominent comedy festival. Exactly. Um, and he. it seems like a lot of his early collaborators would also be kind of do, be in the running and do performances there as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they did them together, but they're at least around the same time. Uh, due to their performance's success, BBC Radio 3 would commission Curtis to co-write a radio series for Rowan Atkinson in 1978 called the atkinson people um each episode would be a satirical profile of a fictional famous person and of course atkinson would be the lead voice throughout the series um it would it would they recorded in 78 it would be released in 79 it shows her on like at least at least four episodes were done um but that almost feels like a early predecessor to what would be 
Blackadder, basically. Mm-hmm. At the beginning of the 1980s, Curtis would be a regular writer on the sketch comedy series, Not the Nine O'Clock News, um, which was a kind of a parody of news news reports, but also had songs and sketches. Um, and it also starred Rowan Atkinson uh, and another future film collaborator, Mel Smith. And then also during this time, Curtis would ri- also write a satirical puppet show called Spitting Image in 1984 and 1985. But a year before that, Curtis co-created the comedy series Black Adder with Rowan Atkinson and it was now be- known as kind of one of the most influential British shows of all time. The show ran for four seasons or four series, as they call it over there, and received three television specials. And each series was set during a different period in Britain, uh, the first being set in 1485 and the last being set in 1917. Atkinson, did he, um, do you know, did he stay with Spitting Image? Um, That show used to scare the hell out of me. Oh, really? Do you, have you ever seen any of that? No. It's, it's just like the super grotesque puppets. It's the same puppets. The guy who designed the puppets also did the um uh uh that Genesis music video. Um you know what I'm talking about. Uh-uh. Um Let's see. Oh wow, these are creepy as hell. Yeah. Oh, what was the, that music video? Um I'm not gonna sing. I'm not gonna sing on this podcast. I'm sorry. Sing, sing on Everyone. the podcast. <laughs> Um, uh, Land of Confusion. Okay. Oh, it's a good music video. You should check it out. But I, I know the I know the disturbed version of that song. If that's the song, <laughs> I didn't know that existed. <laughs> but yeah, those those puppets were always like they. I feel like MTV used to run like oh, yeah. a, like late at night. They'd run old episodes of Spitting Image, and I was always like, huh. yeah. yeah, the extras to Revive series in, in October of 2020. Um, yeah, I mean it ran for 18. It's ran for 18 seasons or series so i don't think he was there the entire time he was there for two seasons at least i think it was the same i think one of the producers on it was one of the same producers for not nine o'clock news and that was Mm. the reason why he went over to that show and i believe it was let me get the um john lloyd is is the name and john lloyd also done uh the tv version of hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy as oh, nice. well um so yeah he was involved in not not the nine o'clock news spinning image and black adder so he works heavily with curtis um a lot of people i think too because um uh with black adder uh curtis would work with ben elton i think on that show and some people like kind of thought that ben elton was the one that kind of helped save the show in some way i think curtis hmm. wrote the first se- series by himself um, but I, I don't know because because Curtis, uh, with that show, he he essentially was the only writer who worked on every single episode and special of the Black Adder series. No one else wrote as much as he did on the show. Um, and the rest of the cast was made up of Tony Robinson, Tim McKierney, uh, Miranda Richardson, Stephen Fry, and Hugh Laurie. So just kind of a who's who of who would become kind of big British icons or comedic icons in some way. Mm-hmm. And then after the ending of Blackadder in 1989, Atkinson and Curtis would continue their television collaboration with another series called Mr. Bean. And the character Bean had been developed by Atkinson during his college years at Oxford, and he performed it with Curtis at Edinburgh. Uh, <laughs> at Edinburgh. Um, years later, they would bring the character back and craft it as a TV series. 
uh, Mr. Bean would run for five seasons. But in between the ending of Blackadder and the creation of Mr. Bean, Richard Curtis would transition into film with his screenwriting debut, The Tall Guy. So, Thomas, I, I didn't <laughs> plan on watching this movie for this episode because it was hard to find. And I was like, eh, mm -hmm. it's, it, it probably doesn't have any connections to Curtis's later work. And then you text me like, hey, I found this on YouTube. You should probably watch it because it's an interesting kind of evolution or showcase of what Curtis would become. So, Thomas, what is the tall guy about? Yeah, so it's I, I ultimately looked it up. I don't remember what I was reading about him, but it, it was just, you know, I was trying not to look too deep into the story. Yeah, because you're you're presenting his life story on this one. But I, I was just kind of looking up his like continued work with Rowan Atkinson and something said you know he wrote this movie kind of loosely based on his experience being kind of the straight man mm -hmm. to Rowan Atkinson as Rowan Atkinson was blowing up um and so I was like oh that sounds interesting Jeff Goldblum Emma Thompson I'll check it out but yeah so it's about Jeff Goldblum's the main character and he has been kind of Rowan Atkinson's a, a fictionalized version of Rowan Atkinson played by Rowan Atkinson. Yeah. Uh, but he's been the straight man in his comedy routine for years and it's just kind of demoralized him. And he uh, meets this nurse through a series of allergy shots yep. that then Hate don't fever. matter to the plot at all. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but he falls in love with this nurse played by Emma Thompson and they end up, getting together and he uh also leaves rowan atkinson and kind of becomes a successful stage actor and then it's kind of about their relationship kind of fame yeah. uh taking a toll on their relationship but it's all presented you know that might sound like a pretty straightforward kind of rom-com but it's all presented in like almost s sketches it's yeah. you know every scene is kind of done every scene kind of has a central joke yeah and it's all fairly absurdist and um yeah it's pretty it's pretty bizarre but i i, yeah. I, I texted you because it feels like he's it feels like this transitional moment where you can see all this sketch writing he's been doing for tv yeah but he's got this like rom-com in his heart oh yeah he does. his spirit that wants to come out i'm looking but, for love but um yeah, yeah i think I, I wrote in my letterbox review it's like every time i don't think the movie is ultimately very successful it's interesting to watch in the yeah. grand scheme of his uh evolution but if you're watching it as a rom-com it, it does feel like in every time he gets close to some sort of emotional sincerity he feel he feels like he has to like follow it up with this crazy punchline yeah um you know like the the big kind of final scene that the big final speech when Jeff Goldblum's trying to win Emma Thompson back, he it takes place in a hospital and he, in, he has some guy like have a heart attack like, yeah. right as he's finishing up his speech. And then he puts a joke on top of that. And, yeah. and you know, they have this, when they first get together, they have this like crazy, ridiculous, that was like, the part. Yeah. Slapstick sex scene. Yeah. Um, that almost plays out like a Zucker brothers movie. Yes. Like, you know, I it's, thought, it's I, just, I, I wrote down, this feels like top secret. Yeah. The way, the way it's done. Where like they're they're rolling on the floor and their hands are playing getting the caught. piano. <laughs> yeah, playing the piano. Hands are getting caught in like uh like glasses and they're like throwing them around and and she's like sliding really far up the wall mm -hmm. and it's all these different things. When you when you look at his later stuff, he would never do anything like that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. When doing, I mean, when doing a sex scene and, and like. 
in some cases, if you look say like trying to do the sexy and love actually between Laura Linney and, and the person she's after, that's like a more heartbreaking, but it's like very relatable, like kind of like realistic scene. And mm. this just feels like it, it's it, like I said, in a Zucker brother film. Like yeah, it, 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 it really does feel like, you know, not to, not to project too much on him, but it does feel like, you know, he's writing this and he's like, Oh, I've got this pretty good idea for a rom-com. And then yeah. he's just like at every turn, he's like, Oh, my friends at like, the oxford review are going to make fun of me if i yeah <laughs> i, I just write a straight up rom-com so i yeah. gotta throw some jokes in yeah yeah and like you have this like nymphomaniac landlord or whatever at jeff goldblum's like uh place mm-hmm. but i it does a good job or it's you kind of see the beginning of like um curtis's leads like eccentric friend group if that makes yes. sense yeah yeah having he's 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 experimenting with having like colorful supporting characters yes. but he doesn't know how to make them human yet yes they're they're all just kind of and, and, and you know he's got the the blind neighbor that just like everything about him mm-hmm. is a there's a punchline about being blind which which he will go on to uh, one of the things i you know didn't put together until i watched all his movies together is he he likes to feature um you know people with disabilities mm-hmm. uh but it's handled much more tenderly i feel like in his in his later films it's yes. much more realistic uh, as it goes on but um but yeah and like you like you said with this kind of nympho landlord it's this running joke that there's always like a naked man hiding in her room and yeah and he'll go on to have these other supporting characters who are very comedic and very outlandish but they're yeah. still human uh which he hasn't quite grasped yeah. here yet or it's or it's the, like the guy that works the theater with Goldblum, the kind of stagehand mm-hmm. that's like this kind of this foreign kind of character. Um, I do quite like Rowan Atkinson in this movie, though. Yes. I will say, like he, I, I can't imagine when Curtis like first showed him the screenplay, and he's like, "Hey, I wrote a movie about us," <laughs> and then Rowan Atkinson read it, and he's like, "I'm a complete asshole in this movie." Because <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, one of my favorite, I think, just like s- simple gags is when they're having the going away party for Jeff Goldblum and Atkinson brings out this small bottle of like almost like airport bottle of champagne. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It feels like, uh, or mini bar of champagne. And he has, they have these little bit like Dixie cups. And then like he pours some from him, tastes it. Oh yeah. And then then just pours the rest of it for (laughs) him. And they're all standing around with cups and nothing to go around. Um, and, or I love when he's like, Oh yeah. Like, uh, He's don't, don't let him talk to you about like Prince Charles or whatever. Like, he says he's friends with Prince Charles. Like he's, he's full shit, whatever. And then the next time you see him, he's like, Oh, my friend Charles, like everyone calls yeah. him Prince, but I, I just call him Charles. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, you have these kind of tender moments between Goldblum and Thompson. Again, it's, it's kind of the, it's the leading up to the sex scene where it's like, you had that moment when it's kind of funny where she's like, Hey, I'm tired. I'm going to bed now. But uh, you want to come around tomorrow and like we'll we'll have sex. He's like, wait, what? And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I we don't have to do the dinner part. Like, just I, I like you. We'll just get it over with. Blah, blah. And they have the kind of little like, what do we do now when we get when they meet in the room the next day? And then it just goes, let's go yeah. really over the top. Like, yeah, I think really I think quickly. the the scene that that really like kind of shines for things to come from him is their breakup. Yeah. Um, yep it's it's really really what she so he's he has cheated on her earlier but it's mm-hmm. not until she's kind of at the after party for his show that she realizes it so and we don't even really like see her realize it but they come back from the premiere 
and there's this kind of joke about like the it's elephant man the musical and everyone's given him stuffed elephants and then he has a stuffed pig and he's like why did someone give me a stuffed pig pig? yeah yeah they must be out of stuffed elephants and then she starts packing up and he's like why are you packing your things she's like i'm leaving you i know you're cheating on me yeah and then as she's going out the door she's like oh and the pig was from me and it's just such it's it's really it's fun that's that's what we're ultimately going to get from him is like it's funny but it's also it rings emotionally true yes. uh, it's a it's a good punchline, but it, it also move it doesn't negate any of the emotions yeah. that are happening in the scene i mean what's what's up with emma thompson getting cheated on in, in a lot of his movies <laughs> i was gonna say i can't believe that kenneth Branagh had the nerve to do pirate radio with richard with, curtis after with- richard <laughs> curtis had made two movies about emma thompson getting cheated on yeah, and then has Emma Thompson and Kenneth Branagh in Pirate Radio, just yeah. never in a scene together. Um, for those who don't know, Kenneth Branagh and Emma Thompson were married, and Kenneth Branagh left her for Helena Bum Carter when he was shooting Frankenstein. Uh, there you go. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but I like because it's like, but she does it very nonchalantly, like, oh yeah, like I know you're having an affair with the actress. Don't you don't have to deny it. I know. Um, and he's like, how? It's like, oh, like when you were pouring her drink, you both looked at one another, but didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. And that's only something you would do if you're, you've been, cl- you're very close with that person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a nice moment, but yeah, it's like, and then, but that, but at one point there's like a random music video in the movie. Like mm-hmm. that's why I texted you. I was like, you're right. This movie is very bizarre. <laughs> like there's, it's just a music video. It's, I think it's like, it's not a mon. It's a montage, but then you have just a random guy singing, mm-hmm. which never happened before and never happens again in the movie. Um, and it feels like it's like we could play this on, on like uh, on BBC or whatever, like <laughs> to promote the film. Um, but yeah, it, it's as you said, it's a very bizarre movie. It's a very we talked about kind of how debuts can be on this show. Um, it's a very raw and uh, raw version of what Curtis was at the time where he's, he's having a, I think a battle creatively on what he wants to be is mm-hmm. the thing is that, is he that, that edgy subversive comedy writer or is, is he just want to showcase like love in some way? Mm-hmm. And the tall guy is kind of the epitome of that. Um, but uh, a few things I want to say about this is the well, I think I, I read about the Atkinson stuff. I believe it was somewhat based on a, a a show that they did in the West End. I couldn't find much on this, but Atkinson did a show on the West End, and it was kind of the experience of making that. I think it might have gone over to America and like failed miserably, and that's what he was kind of writing about as well. Um, but uh, but yeah, Goldblum was actually able to do the do the film apparently because there was an actor strike in the u.s at the time and he just like i'll do this like little british movie to like like uh uh pay the bills i guess mm-hmm. um a script the, the script consultant on the film apparently she script doctors a lot of his movies is helen fielding and helen fielding will become more more popular or more known in the curtis filmography because she was the writer of the initial book for bridget jones diary and she was the original script writer on Bridget Jones's Diary, the first movie. We'll talk about later how Curtis got involved in that. Um, it's also the feature debuts of Emma Thompson and Jason Isaacs as well, by the way. He he plays a doctor 
like a mass doctor and like one of Goldblum's like <laughs> that fantasies. was like a, I do not remember yeah. Jason Isaacs in this movie. Yeah, um, but yeah, the movie was it had mixed reviews, but it was somewhat of a success financially in the UK. Um, it was directed by Mel Smith again, one of one of his previous collaborators on uh not 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 the nine o'clock news. Um, I think it was also it was produced by Working Title Films. If I'm not mistaken, um, and working title would essentially become Richard Curtis's like go-to production. I think it mm-hmm. basically has produced all of his movies basically since then. So a, a very important collaboration for both of them. Reviews wise, Ebert, can you guess what Roger Ebert gave this movie? I feel did he like it? He did. Three stars. Three and a half stars. Wow. Saying it was a sweet, whimsical, and surprisingly intelligent comedy. But after that curtis would go back to tv as well because again he had mr bean uh he also co-created the show the vicar of dibley uh with don french which was a a massive success and is also up there with black adder is one of the most influential british shows of all time uh and that started in 1994 but also in 1994 curtis would release the movie that would i think emphatically launch him as a superstar screenwriter in america specifically and that would be four weddings and a funeral so before we kind of well, what's four weddings and a funeral about thomas it's about four it weddings and a funeral takes place across <laughs> four weddings and a funeral yeah. uh, or really three weddings a funeral and then a wedding right yeah, yeah. um but yeah it, it's it's a, this romance between hugh grant and this kind of mysterious American character yeah. played by Andy McDowell. Um, but, but we really only see them interact across. It's almost like, it's like a full year is over a year, yeah. but, but, but we only see ever the action kind of takes place at weddings, weddings yeah. or a funeral. And yeah. so we only, we don't get to see any of the rest of their life. We, re- we only see what happens at at these events yeah or or that deals because you have one scene where they're when he's going to buy something for her wedding mm-hmm. yes yeah and they have and they have the like cafe moment but besides mm-hmm. that it's it's always been about the wedding essentially mm-hmm. um but yeah and it has his again i think now he's coming into his own with the kind of cast the character characters of friends the cast of friends mm-hmm. um i think it's also kind of sets up a little bit of this framing device um where i think you'll see a little bit more and or not framing device but kind of the this kind of structure of how he will do something like it's he's not, not he's, he's not afraid to jump around in time that's yeah, for sure that's exactly exactly and and i know maybe about time joke but i think a lot of his movies weirdly you you don't have a you don't have a sense of time in a lot of his films if that makes yeah. sense like i wrote that for pirate radio i was like we're just ignoring time structure in mm-hmm. this movie we're just it's just like like little vignettes or whatever mm-hmm. and you could argue that notting hill kind of does that a little bit too um with kind of past time yeah with the not, seasons. notting hill yeah it'll just be like okay a couple of months yeah. have gone by <laughs> yeah and then, and then tr- the next time we jump it'll be like a week's gone by yeah. and we just kind of jump 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 exactly and sometimes they're trying that he tries to give little flagpoles to show you the time, the past of time. Nine Hills example where like it's the, it's the friend that opens a restaurant and then closes a restaurant mm-hmm. or whatever by the end of it. Um, but with this one, he, it's a little bit easier to kind of pinpoint because of the structure of the weddings yeah. and the funeral. 
Um, but so Curtis, he said he was inspired to write the script after he counted up the number of weddings he had been to in the 11 years before the movie. Can you guess how many weddings he'd been to? Oh man. In the 11 years before the 11 movie. years. Uh, I'm going to say he averaged three or four a year. So somewhere in the, in the thirties or forties, more like 65 to 72. Wow. Wow, I, I'm 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 in I'm right there in the like four year range for yeah. like in the post COVID world, but I'm yeah. hoping I'm hoping it dries up before eleven years from now. Yeah, I have I have a buddy. He's like every month is like, okay, going to a wedding next month. I was like, dude, you went to mm-hmm. the wedding last month. I know. Um, yep. but he's like, I've COVID, got, I think COVID I've got really four this year. Up. Yeah, total. Yeah, none of my friends are getting married. I mean, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know. Um, no one gets married in L. A. It's no cool. Married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're we're just together for ten years. Um, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so he, he was inspired to write that. He said also during one of these weddings, he met a woman who asked him to spend the night with her and he declined it. He said <laughs> he would later regret it, but it inspired the movie. Uh, another reason he said he wrote the movie was to explain to his parents why he had never married his longtime girlfriend, Emma Freud. Uh, to this day, Freud and Curtis are still together and have four children, four children, but have never actually married hmm. um, which makes the ending of four wings of funeral very yeah, makes a little bit more sense yeah. more sense um while curtis had worked with collaborators during his television days as a screenwriter he tends to write his scripts by himself there have been exceptions we'll talk about later but even when he's writing with a, a group of people he tends to like to write alone and in turn they say he'll spend sometimes weeks on just one line and sometimes years on just one script he, for four ranks of the funeral he wrote a total of 17 drafts for the movie um wow. to get it right uh also while writing the script curtis chose to cut out most mentions of what the characters actually did for work because he felt they wouldn't discuss it at the weddings mm-hmm. which this feels like another connection to what happens when harry met sally is that they don't really talk about what they do either like they, you're aware kind of what they do but like as Reiner, when Reiner was asked, like, why don't you show them at work and doing all work things? He's like, because that was boring. <laughs> and I wanted <laughs> to show this other things. Um, uh, Mike Newell would direct, would be hired to direct the film. And Newell would later direct things like Donnie Brasco and Harry Potter and the Gobble of Fire. Um, mm-hmm. He brought in here. He did mostly just kind of British and Irish films. Uh, the film was originally going to begin production early 1992 with the famed English theater actor, Alex Jennings in the lead role of Charles. Uh, but the funding for the film would fall through and Jennings would lead the production and that would put them in a bind. So they have to go audition a bunch of actors to play Charles. They saw of upwards of 70 actors for this role. Finally, they discovered Hugh Grant and Hugh Grant had starred in several films up to this point, like Maurice, The Remains of the Day, Bitter Moon, A Favorite of Thomas, The Lair of the White Worm. Mm-hmm. But he was actually thinking about quitting acting because a lot of the roles he was being offered he thought were bad. And then when he got the script for Four Wings of the Funeral, he called his agent and told them, I think you made a mistake. You sent me something good. <laughs> Curtis, however, was hesitant in casting Hugh Grant. Curtis had based the character of Charles on himself, and he felt that Hugh Grant was too attractive to play the <laughs> role of Charles. He wanted to cast Alan Rickman for the role, but Rickman refused to audition for the movie. Uh, eventually, Mike Newell would persuade Curtis to cast Grant. And spoiler alert, this happens a lot with, with Curtis, it feels like, where he refuses to cast someone, eventually cast them. They end up being one of his 
most used actors of his career. <laughs> he would do this with Bill Nye in Love Actually, where he actually did not officially cast him till after the first table read. He was like, no, we're going to find like a bigger actor, like an actual rock star. And then after Bill Nye like killed it at the table read, like, well, we can't have anyone else play this role now. Um, and I think Bill Nye and Grant are his two biggest, like, I think there's the Hugh Grant section of, of Curtis's uh, or film filmography. Mm-hmm. And then there's Bill Nye for the back half of it. It feels mm-hmm. like, like there's a transition afterwards um, for the role of Carrie. Gene Triplehorn was originally cast in the film, but had to drop out because her mother had passed away. Then Marissa Tomei was offered the role, but she turned it down because her grandfather was sick. They would briefly consider Sarah Jessica Parker, Hugh Grant's future oh. future co-star and Did You Hear About the Morgans? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, of course. But, but they would eventually offer the film to Annie McDowell after she had was given the script while in London doing a press release or press tour for the release of Groundhog Day. Uh, McDowell would take a 75% cut on her salary, only receiving $250,000 up front. Grant was paid, I think, 59 pounds, 59,000 pounds or whatever it would be. Um, uh, And after several budget cuts, the film would shoot for only 36 days and extras would have to wear their own clothes because it was such a small shoot. But enough about that with this movie what are your thoughts about this film because i hadn't seen this in a long time and i think i've only seen it once before um and this was actually the last film i watched in my richard curtis uh (laughs) marathon i guess you could say so what were your takeaways with this movie thomas um i I think it's got an amazing supporting cast i mentioned it on the patreon episode but john Hanna is Is fantastic amazing yeah. And he and he, the thing is, he doesn't do much for like the fir- first almost three fourths of the movie. It feels like he's there, mm-hmm. but when the funeral scene comes, it's like it's a John Hanna, just like tour de force. It feels like mm-hmm. in, in there, and it and it feels almost like a cheat to have Kristen Scott Thomas in your rom com. You know, yeah. it's like it, when when she pops up, you're just like, oh, she's she's too good for this, isn't she? Like, no <laughs> offense to anyone you know involved yeah. in this. Um, but she's she's great and every, everyone is is really it's it's it you know I, this one is one that i i really revisiting as an adult i really like it and it reminds me a lot of another movie i really love which is uh Whit stillman's metropolitan mm-hmm. it's just this idea of like this kind of elite like you know yeah. uh group and we're just dropping in on them at these like social events and that's you yeah. know, like like you said like we don't talk about their jobs it's you just kind of like it's all we get is this like the kind of things you talk about at a party when most people are drunk yeah and um and so it, I, I do think it is really fun kind of in the way that it functions in showing people and, and just kind of the way that people behave kind of exclusively at mm. social events um and hugh grant you know is is it's this is his wheelhouse. This is, it's something I mentioned when I was talking about Lair of the white worm, but like you kind of forget as, as his career goes on, you kind of forget just how good he is at just being kind of like dry and, and witty yes. and, and kind of being an everyman. Yeah. He, when he started getting cast in these roles, you know, for, for a long time, he was kind of playing against how good looking he was. Mm-hmm. And then I think when he started getting cast in these roles where they're like, look how hot Hugh Grant is that he kind of lost a little bit of that. Uh, yeah a little bit of that kind of sad sack 
nature that Richard Curtis kind of lets him play, which is yeah. which is he does really well at. Yeah. Um, all that being said, I think I I mentioned this when we talked about Green Card, which I love Green Card. Mm-hmm. Not an Andy McDowell fan, and I don't think she's very good in this. I I like never believe her for a second in this movie. I and I hate I hate speaking ill of an actor in some way, but I kind of agree. Like I felt, I don't know. It's 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 for a or for one. It's very hard if you look at the next collaboration and try to compare Julia Roberts to Andy McDowell. Mm-hmm. Like I think the chemistry is just better in Notting Hill mm-hmm. than Four Weddings and a Funeral. And with Andy McDowell, I think a lot of the time. I don't know. There's something about it where like I can't tell if she's joking sometimes or if she's mm-hmm. being serious. Does that make sense? It's yeah, like no, I agree. And I and you know, I also think I don't think Curtis does her a lot of favors in this movie. It's yeah. it's she's written as almost this like manic pixie dream girl yes. kind of character. Like we don't know anything about her mm-hmm. except that she is is introduced to us as a slut. Quote unquote yeah. from the movie. No, I'm not. I'm not using that word. Yeah. But um, and it's just kind of like she's just kind of there to toy with Hugh Grant, and until the end when she realizes that she's in love with him. But yeah. um, I mean that's it. And you know, like you said, we don't get a whole lot of backstory on anybody, but yeah. I think we get a lot more kind of emotional motivation for almost everyone else in this movie, except mm-hmm. for her. Yes. Uh, and and I understand that there is supposed to be kind of this mystery about how does she feel about Hugh Grant? Um, but it, it, it kind of comes out of left field at the end when, when she's like, I'm in love with you too. And you're like, are you, are you really? Like, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think it's a combination of, of the script and the performance. I, I, yeah, I think, I think Curtis recognizes and corrects mm-hmm. the way that he depicts love interests heading into the next movie. Yeah, but, yeah. um, but yeah. yeah, it doesn't that that's kind of that's the weak link for me in this movie. I, I really, really enjoy all of the friend group stuff, yep. but I don't mm-hmm. I don't know that the romance super holds up. In this yeah, it, it's like you you could have the turn of because you say it, it, they do. Is it Kristen Scott Thomas that says that she's a, like she's heard she's a slut or whatever is is what it is. Yeah. Like she works mm-hmm. for Vogue or something. And you could easily turn that on its head at some point. But instead, he kind of doubles down mm-hmm. when they have that scene at the cafe and she starts listing off all the men she slept with. And it's like mm-hmm. 33 guys is what it is. And she's yeah. like, and but she, and the way she's telling it, she's like, oh, there was, and, and 12 and 13, those were together. That was a fun time. Mm-hmm. And you're like, and, and he's just, and, and Grant's like, uh huh, uh huh. Wow. Okay. Wow. We're still going. And I'm like, is this supposed to be a joke or is she straight up being serious? I'm not saying I'm not criticizing anyone <laughs> in their sexual life, but it was just it, the way it's portrayed. It's like, you don't know if she's trying to just like poke at Hugh Grant mm-hmm. at Charles or if she's being serious. And it's very clear afterwards that she's being, I think she's being serious and it just feels, it feels odd. It just feels like an odd way to go. Mm-hmm. And you could do it. I think you could do, you could handle it a different way of you can make her where she slept around or whatever. And you do it. You, you portray her a certain way or you have that facade that she's this, but she's actually not, but it just 
it just doesn't know what to pick is the mm-hmm. thing. Um, but yeah, I think the friend group aspect of it, it's like, I feel like, again, um, the character of, of Scarlet, I think it's Scarlet. Yeah. Scarlet feels like an early predecessor to honey and Notting Hill as the sister as well. Like mm-hmm. it's like kind of crazy hair, a little eccentric, and, and feeds into the sister in about time. Yeah, exactly. Exact same thing. It's like all his sisters are kind of these eccentric characters that in some cases are kind of seen as screw ups, I think, a mm-hmm. lot of the time in all these films. Well, not screw ups, but like they're 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 just they they're still trying to figure out what to do with their life a lot of the time. It's like with Notting Hill and about time, it's like the sisters are in just bad relationships all the time. And Scarlet is kind of also and like she's just kind of just like going around and doing whatever i had said joke that she's, she she's just kind of a mess like yeah, that's, she's, a mess. She, that's, she's like she can't get her dress zipped up before yeah. that one wedding like don't, yeah. don't 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 or she tells the guy like don't or make sure i'm not drinking that much i get very flirty when i drink or whatever she says um but no again the friend i love simon callow as 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 gareth the friend like i love his reactions at the weddings when like when someone's doing a speech and he's the mm-hmm. only one laughing at something because I feel like I would I wouldn't be that loud, but I would in in my in mind I'd be laughing like he is of like mm-hmm. just watching this person crash and burn. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love his little speech where he's just like, "Can someone in in our group actually get married so I can go to a wedding of someone I actually love?" Like, <laughs> and that was one thing I asked. I was wondering. I was like, and this makes sense of why Kurt. I I feel. I guess I don't know. If, British people just invite everyone to their wedding, but I was like, how do all these people know one another? Because like I get the friend group, but how is Annie McDowell at every single wedding they go to? And then why do all those friends get invited to Annie McDowell's wedding? Yes, I don't feel yes. like they know her. I don't, that yeah, way. I don't think their friend group would get invited to her yeah, wedding. Uh, I can see him, but all of them? That was weird. Like I like she, I, I I highly doubt that her and Fiona, Chris and Scott Thomas spoke a word to one another mm-hmm. <laughs> and yet they they are in there together but yeah um but yeah i think i think this is one that was very big in the moment and as you said i feel like the love story aspect has kind of just worn off a little bit in some mm-hmm. way and you have the big climactic like in the rain speeches that she gives hers he gives his um and that's kind of become a big moment of curtis's career but yeah I, I just i think it was in a time where that felt very fresh and it was such a hit that i think we people look back on it as a really great movie but i don't i don't i wouldn't consider it his best by any mm-hmm. means yeah um yeah, agreed but yeah so a little more information uh, i also that you i love there's two things you have uh, Love is All Around is played at the wedding, which would later mm-hmm. be uh, redone yep. as Christmas is All Around Love, actually. <laughs> um, a few Beatles references as well. But yeah, it's uh, so what happened kind of afterwards, they had a bad test screening for the movie. And I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be horrible. They recut it, showed it in Santa Monica, I believe, and people loved it. Uh, they did have some walkouts and they tested it in Salt Lake City, apparently, uh, because of the, the profanity in the movie mm. um so initially i don't know who it was but people didn't like the original title 
and they are trying to change title before release. Here are some pitches for the titles of Four Eggs and Funeral. True Love and Near Misses. Ugh. Loitering in Sacred Places. What? Rolling in the Isles. I feel like these, these almost feel like all fake titles in a, yes. in a way. Yeah, that, that feels uh, like, you know, in, in, in movies that Julie Roberts' character would have been in and Notting Hill. Notting Hill, yeah. Uh, rolling, that's a Rolling in the Isles. Um, yep. Skulking Around. Mm hmm. Toffs what is on, it about rom-coms not being able to land on their titles? I don't, I know, right? It's like so many movies we're coming up with don't have titles. Uh, uh, Toffs on Heat. Charles and Chums. Charles and Chums. <laughs> oh and, my God. And uh, The Wedding Season. That's what it said, a singer. Wedding Season. Mm. Um, that just come out? Wasn't there one that just came out this year called Wedding Season? Was there? I don't know. I think so. Um. Uh, the producer of the film was Duncan Kenworthy, and Duncan Kenworthy was actually taking a break from his other job at working at Jim Henson Productions. Um, and Duncan Kenworthy would actually eventually would eventually produce several of uh, of uh, Curtis's films, including Notting Hill and Love Actually. And so he started doing it with Four Wings and a Funeral. Um, when the film was released, uh, it was. A massive hit so i think at the the premiere of the movie they had so many different people show up in wedding dresses <laughs> to promote the film but more importantly hugh grant's girlfriend time elizabeth hurley mm. showed up in this black versace dress that was held together with like like pins basically and it became such a famous dress and essentially launched her into like superstardom apparently was her wow, wearing okay. a dress there is so actually without, without four weddings and a funeral we wouldn't have bedazzled correct oh man love bedazzled and probably wouldn't have her in austin powers oh, yeah. and to put in perspective there is a wikipedia page just for this dress just for the liz hurley dress it's wow. called black versace dress of elizabeth hurley that is the title of the wikipedia page <laughs> there is a background section there is a design section there is an influence section there's a controversy section that's yeah, you can't wear a <laughs> black dress to a wedding, isn't that? Isn't yeah, that? Yeah. No, no. I mean, she if you and and basically it's held together with safety pins, and yeah, and she really hadn't wasn't known for anything at that point in time, and it became referred to as and this is what Wikipedia says that dress that in all caps, <laughs> the dress is perhaps Versace's best known creation. And is considered by some to be largely responsible for launching Hurley into the global media stage. So there you go. That's what you got from that. But more importantly, the movie was a box office success. I told you mm -hmm. it was a very small budget. It was around $4.4 million American dollars. It made $245.7 million at the box office. Oh, my God. On a $4.4 million budget, becoming the top grossing British film of all time and receive a Best Picture nomination and a Best Original Screenplay nomination in a very crowded year of 1994 with Forrest Gump, Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, um, a lot of great films. It would lose Best Picture, of course, to Forrest Gump. It would lose Best Original Screenplay to Pulp Fiction. So there you go. And after that, I think Curtis was like... I, I can't verify this, but this next movie feels to me like, hey, I made a lot of money on my film. Let me go help my buddies out. And he goes and makes Bean 
Bean. Mm-hmm. That's the, the film adaptation of Mr. Bean. Now, I rewatched this for this for this episode. Um, it, was, it was hard to find. Uh, and it's one of those movies, like, I when I watched, I was like, oh, yeah, I have seen this before. And why do I remember so much of this movie? Because <laughs> it's one that I saw when it came out. I feel like, I don't know if I saw this in theaters. I possibly did. Because I distinctly remember, like, seeing a... Um, you don't see this anymore I, I, well, at newer theaters, but like when you go into an old movie, they actually had like the mini poster above the like door. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like mm-hmm. now it's just all like it made the digital copy or whatever. They actually had like a picture of the movie. And I distinctly remember seeing a door to walk into with the bean poster on it. Um, and but I remember the whole painting. What I did not remember, this is just a random thing in here. Burt Reynolds is in this movie, and I don't know why, except for a paycheck. I have to say that. Like, it's like he's in <laughs> two, three scenes, and I was like, why is Burt Reynolds in this film? Um, but but basically, Curtis co-wrote the film with Robin Driscoll, who was also a co-writer on, on the original show. It was directed by Mel Smith, who also directed Tall Guy. Um, and it's it's a wacky movie, and there's moments that are fun. And there's moments where it's just a little odd. It feels like it, it feels like the guy who made Tall Guy weirdly, but not the guy who made Four Wings and the Funeral. If that <laughs> makes sense. Like yeah. there's like a weird dark turn where like uh, the climax is in the hospital and someone and the pol- and a policeman gets shot, basically. And Mr. Bean is trying to get a bullet out of the body of the police officer. It's very odd. Um, there is they there is a cover of yesterday, however, in the movie. And uh, Mr. Bean and uh, the other actor, why am I blanking on his name, from Sophie's Choice and Ghostbusters 2. Oh, uh, Peter McNichol. Peter McNichol, thank you. Uh, they're singing, they get drunk and sing Yesterday at one point. Uh, and I was like, wow, we're seeing that early on here. Um, it What's fun about it, and it's more related to the tall guy, actually, because I like the tall guy's random sequences of Jeff Goldblum riding a bike through the West End in London. Mm-hmm. I like that. And you see a lot of that in here where they're driving around LA for LA in the nineties. And so that's, it's, they're both kind of fun time capsules. I don't think Mr. Bean's that good. <laughs> um, but let me tell you how much it made. I wasn't even going to talk about it, but the movie made surprisingly a lot of money. It's uh, very popular for a budget of 18 million. The movie made $251 million at the box office Man, worldwide. Can you imagine any of these movies making this, that much money <laughs> these days? That's what I thought, too. I was like, God, you you would be lucky to make 50 I feel like, with some of these movies. Um, some believe that many kids under 17 bought tickets to see Bean in order to go see the rated R Starship Troopers. That was one, one way of why they thought the box office was so high. But after that, Curtis would move on back to the rom-com genre where I feel like he would probably, he would stay basically afterwards. Cause I don't think he wrote on Mr. Bean's holiday. I think he was a producer of some kind. Uh, his next movie came from an original idea where he said he thought about it at night. Uh, if he went over to one of his friend's dinners and he had someone like Madonna with him, how would everyone react? How would it affect <laughs> what they said? Uh, and that would become Notting Hill. So, Thomas, what is what is Notting Hill about? Uh, Notting Hill, Hugh Grant plays a bookstore owner, and the world's most famous actress, played by Julie Roberts, just kind of wanders into his bookstore Who, one at day. At that time, 
is probably the world's most yes. famous actress. Yes, of is course. the funny part. They actually they uh, actually cast it right. You know, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes where you have to like they're the world's most famous actor, and it's like someone who's like they're fine, mm-hmm. but here they actually pull it off. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so they they end up kind of on a whim uh going on a date and then we kind of see them throughout like the course of a year be kind of on again off again as she comes in and out of london Mm -hmm. with work um and and he has a eccentric friend group once again yep another eccentric friend group but this time I, i think i think this time though more developed as a friend mm-hmm. group, even though I love the friend group and in, in four weddings, I think now you have a better idea of like what everyone does, kind of how they all got together, why they all still kind of like they still hang out, they're still like they they're 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 close knit group basically, um, but yeah, essentially, uh, I think Roberts read the script and said it was the best romantic comedy she'd ever read, and had to do it, um. Grant basically after the collaboration of Four Weddings, they hired Grant pretty much immediately. Uh, Grant said that the story of the idea came from a friend or about taking a friend that was famous to dinner or whatever. Grant said it's not entirely true. Grant says that Curtis actually based it on one of his friends who was apparently a very normal person who started dating an extremely famous person around the exact same time of the movie grant said he could not say who the friend was but basically they were working at a shop when the celebrity walked in they started chatting and they struck up a relationship um and i think in this movie with uh with notting hill i think this is where he really leans into the tropes of it all Mm -hmm. i think you have the best friends i think you have the the idea of like an obstacle standing in their way of why they can't be together. That's mm-hmm. kind of key with a lot of rom-coms is that why can't these two be together? And with this is the idea of fame. It's not really the distance. It's not the long distance. It's the, it's the idea of fame and how it affects your relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you, you add these, the final, the big final speeches. Um, Got another classic rom-com trope in here, which I think this, I think this movie is the only time that he does it, but the, uh, the overheard, overheard the other person say something and then ran away oh <laughs> but i heard you say this yes yes I, there i, I the, the misunderstanding as i said yeah. it's like we talked about in the wedding singer where like sandler walks up and sees drew barrymore in the window and she seems happy as she's in her wedding dress mm-hmm. and he thinks because she's happy to get married to her fiance but she's actually saying she's saying sandler's name over and over again and that's why she's mm-hmm. happy and it's the, it's the it's the classic misunderstanding in a rom-com yeah. Um, Although this one, you, you, Hugh Grant is forgivable, and the she she just straight up says it. She just tells him later that she was lying to that guy. Um, before we get dive into kind of scenes, quick things of who was supposed to be involved. Mike Newell from Four Weddings was offered the role or the role of director, but turned it down and went to Roger Mitchell. Uh, apparently, Nicole Kidman wanted to play the role of Anna Scott, but she said she didn't get it because she wasn't talented enough. I think that was just a joke. Um, but yeah, so here I feel like you start seeing. And I don't think he does it for weddings, but here you kind of start seeing the idea of like opening narration. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of narration throughout a lot of his movies. I forgot Notting Hill even had narration. Yeah. But it does like the first 10 minutes where Hugh Grant's saying the stage. 
kind of, yeah, of everything. Introducing Notting Hill itself. Yeah. yeah. So when do you want to bring up your revelations, Thomas? Because I can, I can do, I can do, they're, they're kind of both fit in here. Okay. Uh, do, do you want to take a guess at, at what? One of, one of mine that I thought was a lot of his films feel like male fantasies. Yeah. This, this goes along with that. Yes. It's like, uh, I think Richard Curtis has an American woman fetish. <laughs> I said that earlier. I said this earlier about about his connection with America. But but even I mean the one I think the you know you've got yeah like you were saying a lot of his leading women are American and they have this kind of like American mystique to them. Yes. But then the big one is the plot line in uh, Love Actually that's just all about fetishizing American women. Like you know, <laughs> the guy goes to that bar and all the like every hot a- actress of a certain age uh, at, at just that all shows up to that bar yeah. yeah and also just to just to say i know rachel mccam's from canada but i would say she's became popular in america so yes. yeah. yeah um north american women. north, north american <laughs> yes north american women but yeah you're right i yeah that storyline of like i want to go because i think i think you remember him saying about love actually like he made the thing about wisconsin and mm-hmm. he didn't realize people thought that was a joke but he just like just picked a random state and people always laugh like he's because that guy's going to wisconsin and he finds like elisha cuthbert and mm-hmm. uh is it january jones is who it yeah. is um and always or, or, or like shan elizabeth like just like mm-hmm. who's who's of like teen boys that like love with, like girl next door american pie um that's that's funny i didn't i mean i i thought male it's a male fantasy where like it's the what if I fell in love with this big superstar actor? What mm-hmm. if I could time travel to get the woman I love? Mm-hmm. What if I lived on a boat and just listened to music all day? Um, what and, if I and was hot prim- women were delivered to me on, yeah, on, a, on a boat on a fishing yeah. boat? What if I was prime minister of the UK? Like I was like, what <laughs> are these just fantasies? So, but I will say with the rom com, there is always a. This, this feels like an oxymoron, but there's always this realistic fantasy, if that makes sense, where like mm-hmm. rom-coms are inherently that where you want to fall in love and you fantasize about falling in love. And I think he just ups it a little bit with the hook that he has to each of his movies. Yeah. Is the thing. My, my other kind of revelation with this one is it this, this watching these two back to back, it almost plays kind of like way back in our John Hughes episode mm-hmm. when we talked about, uh, pretty in pink and some kind of wonderful where it felt it like he like, was kind of yeah. like ah, that one wasn't quite there let me tackle it again <laughs> yeah. and this this kind of plays like he's trying four weddings and a funeral again to make the romance part work better yeah, yeah. but he's got he's got like the the very similar friend group he's got kind of this time hop to just every time that these these people meet and something yeah. is keeping them apart mm-hmm. in the in the times otherwise he's got this very glamorous american woman who has another you know who, who's spoken for is in another yep. relationship um so yeah it, it all kind of play it's you know on, on, at face value it's very different from four weddings yeah. at a funeral but when you really break it down it does kind of feel like he's kind of stripped four weddings and funeral down to the bones and then was like okay how can i build this back back better yeah yeah we're like how can i get more depth to the friend group how can Mm -hmm. i 
give the the lead female interest or lead female role like more meat on the bone i guess you could yeah. say he's um, even got that kind of like unrequited love within the friend group between yeah. hugh grant and and uh, and his friend's wife yeah he's, he's got like you were saying he's got that same kind of like screw up uh sister little sister yeah. character which he said was initially supposed to be which is this is kind of also weird when we think about it. she that character was supposed to be a, a love interest for hugh grant but then it became the sister role hmm. it was supposed to be like she worked the record store across the street from the bookstore it does play kind of weird watch rewatching it now because they have that one friend that kind of early on he's like well no one loves me yeah and she's like well you've never asked me like maybe i could and and you're like oh, okay they're gonna get together and then kind of later on she's just like i've picked reese iphens yeah. <laughs> to be who and the funny thing is, that joke is also in four wings the funeral when the same mm-hmm. sister goes like and no one wants to marry me because well or he's like well I, oh you marry me well you've never asked or oh, would you marry mm-hmm. me no thank you i'm okay like it's very much the same joke um yeah it's here's the thing notting hill has flaws of course but i think it's one that i will always have a love for is the Mm -hmm. thing um i think the moments that are strong really are strong yeah um i think there's moments in this movie where i was like god julia roberts is so charming like mm-hmm. she is just electric like the energy that she's like you can see why she was so big at this point in time mm-hmm. like she something about her there's moments when it's if it's her and in the bookstores in the bookstore scenes it's her when they're like when they're kind of doing the uh, uh or when, when she's staying at his place the entire time when the, when the paparazzi and stuff have found have found her or or had taken pic or had released pictures or they'd gotten pictures of her basically from like earlier uh project she'd done like a porn basically but yeah she's so charming and i think that's what makes this work more than four weddings is because as we said we didn't particularly love andy mcdowell and it's hard when hugh grant's so charming and someone's someone doesn't fully match him mm. but here it's like the perfect combination of hugh grant and julia roberts where he's still that kind of sad sack but his he's still charming in the way he kind of plays everything um we're like he i I mean i love to see when they first meet we're like he knows who she is but doesn't make a big deal about it in any Mm -hmm. way shape or form um but yeah and i still think there's a sequence in this movie that i think is just so good that it's it's i'm surprised not in another movie is when it's the passage of time seasons or whatever that he does where it's mm-hmm. the ain't no sunshine i think is so good for this movie and it's just so weird to see um but yeah any any scenes you want to bring up I mean, i'm kind of hopping around here but any scenes you want to bring up with this movie no i mean we, we we talked a little bit if you're if you're a patreon subscriber we talked a little bit about how much we both kind of enjoy uh receivements in this yeah um no, I just think ultimately when you take it as a whole, I think this is this is when we first see and, and maybe one of the best examples for him of like what makes a Richard Curtis movie and that like, yes, it is a fairly straight like someone else could have made this rom-com, but yeah. because he's made it, the the funny parts are just a little bit wittier. The romantic parts, like when they could be cheesy, they play like as a little bit more true to yeah. life, like a, there's mm-hmm. a little bit of melancholy he throws in that that another rom-com writer might not give you and 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 so everything is like on paper it is 
a, a fairly standard rom-com but he yeah. just gives it this little bit of oomph that just like sets it over the top and yeah. and again we've talked all month about how important chemistry is and and the chemistry is great here mm-hmm. so I, I think it, it all kind of comes together to make to make something really special i live in notting hill you live in beverly hills everyone in the world knows who you are my mother has trouble remembering my name Fame thing isn't really real, you know. And don't forget, I'm also just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. A few things about this movie. The original cut for this film was three and a half hours long checks out i think he later on in his career he's allowed to um go a little long on, on he his goes cuts. a little long on a lot of his cuts after this but they cut 90 minutes out of, they cut a whole movie out of this movie thomas 90 minutes out of this film <laughs> the film would be to no surprise a massive hit how much money did this movie made thomas i just want to see if you can oh geez ballpark it uh 275 no three hundred and sixty three million dollars wow oh man on a 42 million dollar budget i believe 15 of that went to julia roberts (laughs) um deservedly so um it would break the previous record set by four weddings and the funeral uh for the highest grossing british film of all time Uh, it also set the record for biggest romantic comedy opening with 27 million dollars beating the previous record set by another roberts film my best friend's wedding hmm. however the record would be broken a month later with the release of another roberts film runaway bride wow again how much of a hot streak she was on yep in this period is just fascinating to me um so that's the end of the 90s Nine hill comes out in 99 uh and as you go into the 2000s curtis i mean it feels like Curtis can do whatever he wants to. You have two, really three, with Bane included, three massive, massive, massive hits at the box office. And as the 2000s come, it's a mixture of transitioning to directing and kind of becoming a work for hire. Mm-hmm. So his next film would be Bridget Jones' Diary. And it was written by Helen Fielding, who I said earlier was had has been a script consultant on several of uh, Curtis's films and kind of doctored some of his films. They also dated previously at one point, so that's why I kind of have this close connections uh, cl- connection. Um, but for Bridget Jones' Diary, they wanted to cast Hugh Grant in the movie, but Grant kept turning them down, saying, "I'm not going to do it unless you have Richard Curtis rewrite the script." <laughs> And he kept saying, and then finally hired Richard Curtis to rewrite the script, and Grant immediately signed on. And so, again, I rewatched this one. Uh, I think some of the best parts of these movies are Hugh Grant and Colin Firth fighting one another, like mm-hmm. fist fight one another. Grant's fun in this movie. He's he, but he's really a cad. He's really just a terrible human being. It feels like, mm-hmm. um, but it plays off the kind of 
persona that Hugh Grant has set up for himself previously with Notting Hill and Four Weddings. Um, again, like Notting Hill, you have this narration that pops in and out throughout. Um, but yeah, it was a, a massive hit. Again, budget was $25 million. It made $282 million at the box office. Um, and as you said, it's you would not see these numbers today for movies like this. Like, at all. Um, but yeah, so he would do that. It would be a success. And they would move on to Love Actually. And as I said, we talked about this on our Patreon, so you can listen to that. But we'll still talk about it here a little bit. So, Thomas, what is Love Actually... It's about everything. Man. It's about love at Christmas time, Thomas. It's yes, about love it's at a multi-piece uh, kind of following a bunch of different love stories, all yes. built around Christmas time. Some, some good, some very melancholic. Oh, oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> uh, and some happy, some sad, some yeah. problematic as well. We talked this in the show of how, like, with this series, with this, with this movie, how like every story, it's like he's trying to capture every aspect of love in this movie mm-hmm. if it's young love with the kids with the with liam neeson's like stepson um if it's the love even like the, the idea of grief and the love of a lost person with, with liam neeson's uh uh wife in the movie um unrequited love um how uh obstacles get in the way of love with laura Linney, like life gets in the way but in mm-hmm. turn you have kind of like family love there with her and her brother um, you have this idea of the adultery of lust and thrown into it. Um, you have this, you have all these different versions of love in this movie. If it's, if it's the kind of the Notting Hill thing of like a famous person with the regular person with Hugh Grant's character and, um, mm-hmm. and the, and the, and the person who works, uh, at, at the, uh, at the prime minister's place. Um, but like you have all these different versions of love and it's, it's a big film. It's a very big movie. Um, and and what's what's some things that you like about Love Actually, Thomas? Um, you know, I think it's a it's a great cast. Yeah, it's a fantastic score. The some some of the moments in Love Actually, I'm just like the score is just carrying this movie right now. <laughs> um. But you know, ultimately, I think yeah, some of them haven't aged as well as others. But but you know, the, the, there's just some things that ring, like just really that the the bond between Liam Neeson and and the kid. Yeah. Um. You know, it's just there's some there's some really really great stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emma Thompson listening Emma to Jimmy Thompson, Mitchell. Jimmy Mitchell is amazing as yeah. always. Yeah, um, Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman just kind of up against each other as a powerhouse. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know the problematic stuff put aside. I, I do think it is it is a great actors doing some really well done little vignettes. And, yeah. and like I said, it, it, there's something about Richard Curtis that he's not afraid to give you the 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 sad with the happy and he knows mm-hmm. how to balance it really well where you come away from the movie being like, I feel good about, feel good about love. love. Yeah. <laughs> Even though we've watched like some, some pretty devastating storylines play out. I mean, I always think to the scene, or the, the Emma Thompson listen to Johnny Mitchell is, is one thing, but as an acting like dialogue scene, I always think to when Emma Thompson confronts Alan Rickman about the affair. And I find that just, it's, it's a 
from an acting perspective, it's well done. From a writing perspective, it's well done because oh yeah, that line where he's I've I've been a complete and utter fool, and she says yeah. yes. But what's worse is you've made a fool out of me. Is yeah. such a good line. Yeah, and a fool out and 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 out of the life that I lead. It's, yeah, oh, it's great. It's heartbreaking. And what's yeah. so great is that when you think of the scene, it's like from a character motivation, she's known about this for a little while, mm-hmm. and for some reason, she chooses to bring it up to him at their kids basically like a play or performance or recital or whatever and it's such a smart move because she knows he'll be caught off guard and she knows there's an out that her kids are about to come and they won't talk about it for long Mm -hmm. and now he has to sit and think with think about it for a while before we can actually talk about it it's a brilliant move as an act or as an as a as a writer to put that in this this uh unsuspected play unsuspected place i guess you could say of where that conversation would be you think it'd be like at home in the privacy of your own bedroom or whatever but she does it blat- out in public to where he's so caught off guard he can't really deny it mm-hmm. and now he has to sit with his feelings about this and, and it's a great scene um he grant of course always amazing i feel like in mm-hmm. this movie i think he him and Martin McCutcheon, I think, have really great moments together. His dance sequence has become so parodied and, and beloved as time has gone <laughs> on. I think this is one of the one of the movies of Curtis that while Notting Hill is, I think, was the biggest hit, something about love actually is the one that continues to grow. That's, a, that's the beauty of year. making a Christmas movie, man. Yep. Everybody wants to rewatch. You might not sit down and watch Notting Hill every year. Maybe you do. You know, it's a rom coms have the built in like Valentine's Day thing, but yeah. yeah you gotta watch you gotta watch love actually at christmas that's that's just how it works because like the first the first time i watched it i told us on the show on patreon was that like it was i think 2008 is what it was so it was a few years after i had never heard of it like five years i had i was like why is this entire this great cast in this movie i'd never heard of it and it just as time has gone on more people fall in love with it i mean i saw a graph i think it was like good morning america some showed a graph of like the popularity of love actually and like pretty much i i got on the ground floor my year was like the lowest year of popularity when i saw it and then every year since then <laughs> it just has gone up and up and up and up and up to where now it's it's become also like a time capsule of its era too is the thing with the technology mm-hmm. and and it's also post 9-11 world because that's the that's the other part is that it's distinctly saying like saying what the whole opening part is again another Hugh Grant narration talking about like him at Heathrow Airport and of of how after 9-11 happened everyone's view of like seeing like love has changed in some way and mm-hmm. I'm like wow is love actually is a 9-11 movie in this weird odd way um, or at least a statement on it tell me if you were in my position, what would you do? What position is that? Imagine your husband bought a gold necklace and come Christmas gave it to somebody else. Come. Would you wait around to find Good out night. if it... No, 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 have Christmas. Would you wait around to find out if it's just a necklace or if it's sex and a necklace or if, worst of all, it's a necklace and love? Would you stay? Knowing life would always be a little bit worse. Or would you cut and run? 
gold. I am so in the wrong. A classic fool. Yes, but you've also made a fool out of me. You've made the life I lead foolish too. It might not be a surprise, but it was a decent hit uh, at the box office. On a $45 million budget, it made $250 million at the box office. Oh, he's just printing money. He, It feels like it. Um, he did say it was one of the worst experiences he had in his career. May, the thing that he had the, mo the worst experience at was in the editing process. Mm. Apparently, the movie was rushed to make a 2003 Christmas release date. Um, and he said it was the worst it was the most nightmarish experience or the only nightmare experience he had in his career was while editing this film um many criticized it for being bloated and kind of sappy um but it ends up being i think he was inspired by pulp fiction so and robert altman so it ends up being his robert altman movie mm -hmm. the most of these big storylines and, and and it's kind of it's kind of flaws sometimes again make it what it is because make you appreciate a little bit because again it's a time capsule of its era of of the kind of movies that are being made of the comedy that was happening so it's it's a it's an interesting kind of film in his filmography mm -hmm. uh his next movie very briefly he would do another writing project with bridget jones the edge of reason uh again more narration um <laughs> More fighting between uh, Hugh Grant and uh, Colin Firth, which was just amazing. Than finding, you know, that is, we, we, we got to give him a little bit of credit. He we talked about a lot of his movies being male wish fulfillment, but the Bridget Jones movies are like, what if the two hottest men in England were in love with me? Yeah, <laughs> what if Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice and the guy from Wings of Funeral were in love with me and yeah. are literally fighting over me? Mm -hmm. Um, I did not expect this because I never seen this one before. I had not expect for a good portion of this movie to take place in a Thailand prison. Uh, and it does. Was okay. expecting that. I, had n I so ba so briefly at one basically she goes on a trip uh with her with her best friend and when they come back because the other woman had met this guy, this kind of like beach bum type dude, and he gives her the statue and she had to put it in Bridget's suitcase. And what you realize when you get to the, the airport is that the statue that he gave was full of cocaine. And mm. so she winds up in a Thailand prison. Yeah, she, yeah, she was doing, yes, she was doing a, a, she's doing a travel show with Hugh Grant's character. That's why she was in Thailand. Uh, and so she goes, she ends up in jail in a Thailand prison and Colin Firth has to get her out of a, a prison <laughs> in Thailand. I was like, what is going on in this movie? This was not on my bingo card here. Um, the budget for the film, Thomas, was $50 million, and it made $265 million at the box office. Wow. Accountants love him. It's like, well, yes. if we make this movie, we're going to get around $250 million back. And then that leads us to The Boat That Rocked, also known as Pirate Radio in the U.S. Um, because, spoiler alert, that run is about to come to Does an not end. not make 250 million. <laughs> um, released in 2009, uh, it is a ensemble film, again, kind of following up Love Actually, where I think we talked about how it's this kind of almost famous-like story 
where this young man by the name of uh, young Carl uh, is sent to spend time with his godfather, uh, played by Bill Nye, Quentin, who runs Radio Rock, a pirate radio station uh, off the off the seas or off off the coast of England uh, at this point in time, based on or inspired by True Story. It's a fictional pirate radio station of a group of eclectic disc jockeys who would play rock and pop music to the UK audiences uh, on a ship anchored in the North Sea. This was because government at that time on BBC only played, I think, an hour of rock and pop music throughout the week. So, and you're thinking about in 1967, it's it's the British invasion. It's rise of British music and coming over to America is just insane. But for some reason in the 1960s in the UK, it's not being played on the radio. So people would listen to these pirate radio stations uh to hear all this music basically um i saw this i don't know if i saw it in theaters because it was one that like it was it wasn't in the theaters long in the u.s um again in the uk it was called the boat that rocked north america pirate radio so it was a rental for me but i think this is one that was beloved in my friend group because of its soundtrack is the thing and i think also because of philip seymour hoffman Mm -hmm. hoffman i think is just amazing in this movie for like what 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 it's what he's given it's like he's so much fun in this film mm-hmm. so what what are i guess what what are your thoughts around this movie if you're what's your history with it but what are your kind of thoughts after rewatching it this time yeah i mean it's it's a great soundtrack this is one of my favorite eras of uh, or kind of genres of music is that kind of like late 60s pop when kind of the the kind of kind of acid rock was spilling over into pop is um, such an interesting era for me that I don't think gets enough credit. Like Tommy James, like any Tommy James song is like as good as a Beatles song. I'm sorry. Uh, is that Crimson? <laughs> very Clover? controversial. Is that, is that what you're talking about? What's that? I'll see. What did he, what did he do again? Did like Crimson yeah, and Clover. Yeah, Crimson Clover. Yeah, that's what I yeah. thought. Yeah. yeah. A lot of, a lot of really, really good songs. Uh, Moni, I think they did the original Moni Moni. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah, great soundtrack. But yeah, no, it's just it's it's it is one of the great. I think it it follows a long line of great hangout movies. You've got all these really big personalities, great actors, great character actors playing them. You don't you don't need to get much more. Like you get exactly what you need for every character. Uh, time's very fluid. You know, if yes. it's not for that kind of like Kenneth Branagh little plot line of of them trying to to thwart them, you really wouldn't even have uh, any idea of. of the extended period of time but um it's it's just it's really fun you know don't don't expect it to to give you any any greater visions of of life or anything you know i I, it but but for for what it is this kind of capturing of the vibe of a of a period i think it does a great job and everybody in it seems to be having a blast and i think overall the movie is just it's again it's a very outside of Hoffman it's a very British movie because mm-hmm. like all I thought about the ending is like oh this is Dunkirk <laughs> you know what I mean when they're yeah, all everybody like, rolling up to save rolling them. up with their boats to save them oh this is Dunkirk this is a very British like story you're throwing in here um yeah everyone's fun this movie I, I think I think the downside of this I put this in my letterbox review um and this happens to a lot of hangout movies of this caliber is that sometimes the weak link is actually the star of the movie 
Like yeah. I think I think Carl is the least interesting character in the film. Oh, and I know I know he's supposed to be because he's he's kind of our eyes, but it just he just kind of feels dull, is mm-hmm. the thing. And because yep. you have someone like Hoffman and Rissa Fans uh, as Gavin Kavanaugh, like they're all just wit- and Bill Nye. I think they're all just like more fun to even Chris O'Dowd. They're all mm-hmm. kind of more fun to watch. Is the thing I I completely forgot Tula O'Reilly was in this movie until I just rewatched it. She's great. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like everyone's everyone's really good in the movie, except Amelia's bad. Tom Sturge's. I, I just think it's just it's just not, not the best. Yeah, they don't give him a whole lot to do. A lot to do. Um, but I, one of my favorite things is Bill. It's Bill Nye at the end when they're like, he goes, okay. When the boat's about to sink, he's like, "Hey, I got mm-hmm. good news. I got bad news. What do you want first? Good news. Okay, the good news is the boat is sinking, and we're all going to die." <laughs> <laughs> I go, "Oh my! What's the bad news? The bad news is I didn't tell you how we're gonna die." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say for this one, I, I think a lot of hangout movies kind of struggle with an ending, and um, this this has got you know probably the, the the most exciting climax of any hangout movie yes it's just a, a <laughs> boat sinking oh man multiple people almost dying you almost don't you dying. don't get that in many hangout movies and philip seymour hoffman not afraid to go down like a champ and play mm-hmm. music till the very end i just think i mean it's like it's he's so great i love the scene when when he's gonna say fuck on the radio and then mm-hmm. he, he does the whole bit with bill nye where he has him end up saying it um I love his his stuff with Gavin Kavanaugh and the kind of like toxic masculinity of like I'm the, I'm the count here I'm the oh mm-hmm. you're the count I guess that makes me the king or whatever like they're kind of banter back and forth um I think it's great I think there's also but also too it's it's interesting it does showcase again comedy in the 2000s where it's very male dominated because there's mm-hmm. a lot of just I wrote down like there's a lot of toxic like dudes in this movie. Like Nick yeah. Frost is like a dick. Like yeah. sleeping with like the like with the girl that yeah, he's and every, every female character is objectified in the yep. even even, even the mom. Emma, even Emma Thompson. <laughs> yeah, even Emma Thompson. It's just like you do know your mom's really, really hot, right? I know it's your mom. <laughs> you don't really notice it, but she's really, really hot. Um but yeah, just a just a killer soundtrack. I think it's it's fun for what it is. It has a special place in my heart. But I realized something, and instead of crushing the thought, the moment it came, I I let it hang on, and now I know it to be true, and I'm afraid it's stuck in my head forever. What was the thought? These are the best days of our lives. a terrible thing to know, but I know it. I don't know about that. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. Maybe you'll be lucky. Maybe you'll you'll have better days, but I doubt it. We stood on top of the mountain, compadre. It's a long way. Do we do we down? But sadly, it would not be a box office success like the other films of Richard Curtis. It also feels like one of the more, because it doesn't deal with the aspect of love for the most part, it's not in the same realm 
as his rom-coms it feels like mm-hmm. it's kind of a little offshoot yeah of it's it. it's like how do you market this you, you yeah. can't really say like from the guy who brought you notting hill because people are going to be disappointed because again it's i think it's very much trying to appeal to a young male mm-hmm. audience yeah um so it was released in the uk under the title the boat that rocked and it wouldn't make a lot of money uh at the time it would i think it made 6.1 million pounds i guess is what it is i apologize if that's <laughs> not how you read the thing um but that forced him to recut the movie and he cut out like 15 20 minutes of the film realized for the american audience they should retitle the movie so it went from being the boat that rocked to uh pirate radio um it was released around christmas time in 20 uh in 2009 uh in the u.s i believe and it would uh do poorly there as well um <laughs> it would be released around the same time as 2012 or 2012 the john cusack Roland emmerich movie and mm-hmm. robert zemeckis the christmas carol and oh, wow. it, it would only make eight million dollars in north america and for its total budget it would only make 36 million off the 50 million dollar budget of the film Oof. so really was a box office failure um has had a little bit of life uh but not as much as as his other films so yeah again i think it's i think it's great to watch if you're loving uh if you're loving hoffman in it but again like love actually it was criticized for being bloated is the thing um (laughs) and then we move into the 2010s and i think in the 2010s is when you see richard curtis get a little more selective in the work he does uh kind of right out of the gate uh in 2011 he is a writer on warhorse uh, mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg's War Horse and our very very English uh, movie. Uh, our- you know, shout out real quick when we were talking Mike Newell earlier. I was gonna throw out uh, they actually really like Mike Newell's Great Expectations movie. It's like 2012, oh, really? but the kid from War Horse uh, was it Irvine? Robert Irvine? Mm-hmm. Is that right? Jeremy Jeremy Irvine. Jeremy Irvine. Robert Irvine's the chef. Jeremy Irvine. <laughs> uh, he plays yes. he plays Pip in it. Um, oh, cool. But it's uh yeah it's like Ray Fiennes as the mysterious benefactor and Helena Bonham Carter as Mrs. Havisham. Was so this like was this like a BBC type thing or was no, it? No, it was a feature film. Oh, okay, interesting. I haven't seen yeah. it. Um, so basically, Rich Curtis was brought on to do a rewrite of the script, and apparently, the reason why he got the job, and one says because it ties back into his early career, he got the job because he had worked with period pieces in Black Adder, and had mm. done World <laughs> War One. Uh, story so he knew the lingo and the terminology and kind of the history of the era and so they brought him on to write it and initially Spielberg wasn't attached to direct it and it was Curtis's first draft that convinced Spielberg to direct the movie oh, wow. he was just a producer on it um, and that's what convinced Spielberg and I actually I like War Horse I, people it's a lesser Spielberg for sure but I think a lesser Spielberg is another filmmaker's best film. A lot of the time is the thing. <laughs> and War Horse was a big success. A lot of Oscar nominations. It was in that weird period where, again, it's so same time. That was the day that War Horse came out, I think, on December, on Christmas Day, 2011. And Spielberg had another movie come out the same exact day, The Adventures of Tintin, also written by some British writers, which were, I think, <laughs> Joe Cornish and Edgar Wright. So mm-hmm. he's just working with British people at this point in time. Um, and I think they're both good films for, for what they are. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that was 2011. And then his next movie 
his next directorial effort that he has said would be his last directorial effort. And that is about time. So Thomas, what is about time? About, uh, about time stars, uh, Donald Gleason as a young man who finds out that his men in his family have the ability to time travel. Yeah. And it, uh, kind of very, if, if you haven't seen it, um, here's, I guess this is spoilers, but it, it kind of very, notoriously or i don't famously i don't know the, the, the what is ultimately so unique about it is it kind of sets itself up as this uh rom-com it's all about he's in love with yeah. rachel mcadams and he's using his time travel to uh make her fall in love with him but then it ultimately becomes much more of kind of a drama about aging yeah. and and becoming an adult and, and, fa- and family <laughs> i think it becomes like family, a family drama yeah. in the back half yeah um kind it's, of really pulls a bait and switch on you it really but, does um, because it is it is a rom-com i think technically it's 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 almost like a romantic comedy about family in some cases but then yeah because i mean it's i'll be honest i was i was in tears in this movie by the end of the film like yeah. the stuff with the dad and again like i said the, the stuff about aging and kind of moving on and grief and all these different things it it like it hit me like mm-hmm. it really hit me and yeah and the way it like it turns from that rom-com and the rom-com stuff's very charming like yeah. i love like the scene when they're in the dark room together when they first they're kind of meet cute or whatever mm-hmm. like they're so good together and then gleason is just like it, and i also i love kind of the supporting players again you kind of have like tom hollander who plays like his uh bill nye's like friend from college or whatever is mm-hmm. a playwright that gleason lives with his like eccentric landlord is hysterical yeah i <laughs> like love the, big i'm a big tom hollander guy but like, I, I love him in this he's so amazing and like because he's always like at every family function and they're just like <laughs> why are you here he's like i was told there'd be booze they lied <laughs> like he's like comes like the kid's birthday party like the he was just like so pissed he's there he's like that's how i was told there'd be booze um or then again the first time when you see him he's walking up to the door <laughs> and gleason and he's smiling and he opens the door he goes what the fuck do you want <laughs> he's like i had the first good idea i've had in 11 months and then you ruined it <laughs> um but yeah the stuff is very charming with 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 at mcadams and gleason um bill nye is a lot of fun ram i just i always forget margot robbie is in this movie as yeah. like kind of his so it's like Secondary what the same love same year as as Wolf of Wall Street. I, I remember it being like a one it two is. punch. It is the same year, twenty thirteen. Yeah, because Wolf of Wall Street came out the end of twenty thirteen, and this came out uh, in September. So I think it's September or so. Um, but yeah, it, this is a movie that when I worked at the video store and people asked for rom coms that they hadn't seen about time was usually the one that was always recommended. It felt mm-hmm. like, even though it is, a, it's more than just a rom-com. Um, and weirdly it's one that I see a lot of people talk about. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's like it's millennials and maybe even kind of Gen Z when they say like, what's your favorite? Like rom- I, I have heard several people say their favorite movie is about time. And it's mm-hmm. almost shocking to hear sometimes because yeah, because no one was really talking about it. I feel when like it when came it came out, yeah, it, no one talked about. It. And for some reason, this movie is like kind of the sneaky film that has gra- gained a popularity in the past decade. 
Yeah, I feel like it also like when it dropped, it was like right in kind of the the backlash to Love Actually when people were starting to go like, oh, actually, some of that stuff in Love Actually was kind of problematic. Yeah. And I, and, and I do think it was kind of looked down upon because of that. And then uh-huh. as people have also kind of reevaluated Love Actually since then. Yeah. Then it's also been like, oh, yeah. And this about time. But I mean, it is. Yeah, it, it absolutely blew me away the first time I saw it. The, the score they base the whole score around Ben Fold's song, the luckiest, which is mm-hmm. all kind of about like aging with someone and like love persevering through time. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just Bill Nye is, is incredible in it. Like, mm-hmm. and, and it just, it, it's like a gut, the, the second half of the film is a gut punch and you like are just not, it's so the, the rom-com stuff in the beginning is so charming and light that that you're just kind of you're just not ready for it when it comes but it's it's all so well done i think it was also one of his more mixed review films but just as we said like it's it's gained a following and appreciation because it kind of subverts what you're expecting Mm -hmm. is that you have that rom-com element for a good hour and then it's it's kind of the like it's what you don't see in the rom-com if that makes sense like usually the rom-com ends they get married and they're together that's the end and now this back half is about how do you have a life after the rom-com mm. and what do you deal with when you're getting older and how do you deal with things in your life if it's grief or whatever with that significant other is is another issue so yeah i i really like it yeah same this is going to sound strange be prepared for strangeness get ready for spooky time uh, but there's this family secret and the secret is that the men in the family can travel in time. Well, more accurately, travel back in time. We can't travel into the future. This is such a weird joke. It's seriously not a joke. So you're saying that you and Grandad and his brothers could all travel back in time? Absolutely. And you still do? Absolutely. Although it's not as dramatic as it sounds. It's only in my own life. I can only go to places where I actually was and can remember. I can't kill Hitler or shag Helen of Troy, unfortunately. Okay, stop. It would come out, I said, at the end of 2013. It would make $88.5 million on a $12 million budget. Um, Reviews, I said, were kind of mixed. Some people criticized the plot holes of the movie and didn't like that it wasn't really a sci-fi film no no it's absolutely i i i use this movie a lot when when you're discussing kind of like hard sci-fi and soft yeah. sci-fi this is a soft i like sci-fi. to reference this movie and primer yeah. uh yeah like this movie is complete he's like yeah you can time travel like yeah. don't worry about how it happens but what are the emotional implications of that being possible whereas primer mm-hmm. is just all about like these are the mechanics of time travel this is how time travel could actually work yeah I, I it's fun um variety would say it was reassuringly bland and <laughs> says there's a sense of deja vu especially for anyone who had seen the time traveler's wife um oh, i believe someone on. i believe someone listed that that mcadams has been involved in four different movies that deal with time travel and <laughs> she's never time traveled in any of those movies no oh, no midnight paris was another one and they said that, oh, it's yeah. like they kind of counted doctor strange too yeah. in a way the Guardian said it's not it's about as close to home as an homage to Groundhog Day that you can get without calling in the copyright team. Uh, that, I don't think that's given it enough credit for yeah. the second half of the film. 
um yeah it's it's it yeah it's funny to see how this movie has kind of turned around for people mm-hmm. um but yeah so after that he's never directed another movie before after since then he's in a few different things writing wise he he wrote uh his i think his least successful film is a movie called trash yeah i've never until you literally Listed even it, looking yeah. over his imdb i must have just glazed over it yeah it's it's when i need to i'm sorry i haven't watched it because it's a crime drama thriller that he wrote directed by Stephen uh, Daldry, who also did a mm. uh, Billy Elliot mm-hmm. and the reader in the hours. Um, but in, in about time, his Gleason's lawyer friend is actually reading trash. At one point he's reading the book, uh, which again, this makes me think of when Harry met Sally, when uh, Billy Crystal's reading misery and that mm-hmm. would be Rob Reiner's next movie. Trash would be Richard Curtis's next movie uh, after this. Starring Rooney Mara and Martin Sheen. Weird. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think they're the leads because it's about three Brazilian street teenagers in Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> I got to find this movie, apparently, because this seems fascinating. Uh, after Trash, he would also get story by credit on Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again. Uh, <laughs> apparently, what it, why he gets story by credit is that they called him up to write it. He was kind of too busy, but he pitched the idea of it being a prequel in some ways because they knew Meryl Streep wouldn't do a sequel basically. Mm-hmm. So he says, let's do Godfather part two, basically when he, <laughs> pitched, when he pitched to them, Hell uh, the pitch. but he was like, Hey, I can't really do it. So here's my friend, old Parker to do it. And old Parker had written best exotic Marigold, Marigold hotel one and two. Um, and he also, they just, he just directed uh ticket to paradise. So Parker has had a good career. Um, uh, so after after the Mom Mia two, here we go again. Um, he would write the script for Yesterday, star or directed by Danny Boyle. So I guess briefly, Thomas, it's a pretty easy pitch or premise. Uh, what's Yesterday about? It's about a musician who wakes up in a world where no one except for him has ever heard of the Beatles, and just kind of decides that he's going to he's a struggling musician and he decides yeah. he's going to kind of take his music career off by just claiming to have written Beatles songs. Yeah. And it's done that. And then there's a, a kind of a rom-com element to it in the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Hamish Patel and Lady James, the kind of, they're the I think best friends who eventually like they should end up together basically is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, some people I know dislike this movie <laughs> i thought it was fine yeah like uh, I, I, it, I enjoyed it for what it was i knew what like i was getting I, like richard i said curtis. at the top of the episode it, it, richard curtis movies are better than they have any right to be <laughs> and when this one came out i was like all right that seems pretty simple it's a pretty simple idea pretty simple concept at the middle yeah. of it but ultimately i think he follows it to a pretty interesting place emotionally yeah again this is why i said i said male fantasies this feels like what if i wrote the beatles songs yeah is the thing um and it's an interesting kind of collaboration between Curtis and Danny Boyle, who's directing it. And mm-hmm. there's a scene I remember when they're trying, when when uh, when Jack, the lead character, is trying to kind of talk out the songs that's like marketing people or like the record company. And you're seeing them, and he's like pitching these like phenomenal classic Beatles songs. And everyone's mm-hmm. like, yeah, but what? that doesn't really sound right. What if you did this instead? And it's like <laughs> they're changing the art of it. And it feels like Danny Boyle, it was his first movie that he made 
after he dropped out of James Bond. Mm-hmm. And there's moments where I feel like he is just like releasing some anger <laughs> of what possibly was conversations he had during making James Bond with like producers and studio people. Mm-hmm. Cause he's yeah. very much like there's a, there's a disdain for, for suits in this movie, I guess you could say. Yes. For the suits for sure. executives. Um, and yeah, so yeah, it's, it's fine. It's, it's, it's what, what I think is so funny with this movie is that it will now be known for the lawsuit that came yes. to this movie fascinating fascinating so what's the lawsuit about thomas uh there was a scene with anna de armas featured heavily in the trailer that ultimately did not make the final cut of the film and yeah. there is a class action lawsuit against the studio from people who claim they only saw the movie because they thought anna de armas was going to be in it yeah and and December, it's still ongoing. It's still ongoing. A, a, a judge allowed this class action lawsuit to proceed in December 2022, stating at its core, a trailer is an advertisement designed to sell a movie by providing consumers with a preview of the movie. And if Anna Armas is in the preview, and she's not, and what's funny, this is over three ninety nine. Like this is just someone who rented it on Amazon is the thing. <laughs> um, but you could, yeah, it's it's gonna. Wow, it's gonna be a big. It could be a big lawsuit. It could be a big mm-hmm. lawsuit. Um, but yeah, and so now his next movie, apparently that just came out, I think at the end of last year, is that he's writing another Christmas movie. Thomas, hey, uh, nice. to star Melissa McCarthy is what's gonna happen. Okay. Um, so yeah, so let's. I haven't done this in a while. Let's move on to stats real quick, okay. Thomas. Um, I can't remember what we usually do. It's been a while. Uh, okay, so film popularity. What are his top three films? Uh, well, Notting Hill. Number three. Love Actually. Number two. And, ooh, okay. Yeah. About Time? About Time, number one. All right, shout on, out Letterboxd crowd. On Letterboxd, uh, Letterbox, About Time has 605,000 views. Love Actually has 584,000 views. Notting Hill has... 463,000 views. Uh, Shot in the Dark. Can you guess the bottom three? Tall Guy. Tall Guy, bottom. Trash. Trash is next. Uh, Bean? Not Bean. Boat That Rocked? Yep. Let me me make sure. Let me say, because they did this. Yeah, it's the Boat That Rocked. Pirate Radio is number three, which is somewhat surprising um average rating here thomas what are the top three what are the bottom three uh about time number one notting hill number two love actually no that is number five okay it's a little bit of a trick question not a trick question but it's probably the one he did the least amount of work on and that's mom mia here we go again is number three (laughs) with a three point well, see, I huh? forgot people like that movie. I still haven't yeah. seen that one. I haven't seen I either. Forgot it was well, kind see. of a meme to like that one. Well, I w- it's kind of a tie for third because because Mom Mia two both that rocked and Love Actually all have a three point five. Um, Notting Hill is a three point six, and About Time is a four point Wow, that's that's really surprising. Yeah, so I, if you haven't seen About Time, guys, you should go check it out. And then what are the bottom three, Thomas? Uh, bottom three are Tall Guy. No. No? People no. like Tall Guy. People like Tall Guy. Tall Guy, yeah. Uh, the second Bridget Jones movie. Yep. Yep. 
next to last trash do people like trash trash in the middle trash is at a 3.3 okay um and it's got bridget jones 2 bridget jones 2 yesterday do people dislike yesterday on the bottom one 2.9 okay pirate radio no bean Uh, it was bean bean okay bean is a 3.0 bridget jones 2 is a 3.0 yesterday is a a 2.9 it's the only two only one that goes goes in the two points um i'm pretty sure this is the right answer but who has the most appearances in a richard curtis movie uh oh man okay so roan atkinson's done a couple bill nye's done a couple hugh grant i know of at least three bill nye Mm -hmm. at least three rowan atkinson's at least well hugh grant has five yes five yes but the bridget jones put him over yeah rowan atkinson i think is is pretty close after that um and with thompson's in three bill nye is actually i didn't count but he's also in a tv movie that richard curris wrote called girl in the cafe i believe Hmm. um so he would be he'd get four but still i think uh grant is the one that wins out there all right uh final director questions is richard curtis not tour you know what i think so i was gonna say even with like yesterday i was like it feels more like a richard curtis movie than a danny Danny boyle movie movie, which is some people's uh problem yeah with it ultimately but yeah i think he definitely has i think he definitely has a voice that comes through no matter who's directing um yeah i agree yeah which you know ultimately all tour theory it's like who's the author of the movie and i Mm -hmm. think yeah i think he emerges throughout all his films as the as that's why i always think i do think it's funny anytime mike newell is kind of billed as like from the director of four weddings and a funeral (laughs) like yeah like that really doesn't feel like any of his other movies that he's made yeah when i think of yeah it's like well it's like donnie brasco you know donnie brasco the yeah you had the poster goes like from the director of four weddings and a funeral here's donnie (laughs) brasco this crime drama with johnny depp and al pacino um okay uh what are richard Curtis's running themes love love but uh but um, you know a much more realistic like he's still it's he's such an interesting tone because he's still a little cheesy yeah he's got just enough cheese he's got just enough cheese that you that you like it but he's also got a very realistic view of kind of romance and and he's he's not afraid to kind of wallow in the heartbreak you know and it's it's not like you know well, and Bridget Jones, it kind of is that kind of like weepy. I'm gonna get a pint of ice cream kind of heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's like played for a joke. Like he he's not afraid to show you real heartbreak. Um, and then I think he's all of his rom coms are kind of like concept based in a pretty interesting way. Yeah, you know, it's all kind of you know like you were saying they they all kind of come from this jumping off point of like time travel or. Or like you were saying, this idea of like bringing a famous person to dinner, like it, it's, it it always feels like there's a, it, it never really feels like he starts with like boy meets girl at the heart of it. Yeah, it always feels like he starts with something a little like a like a bigger concept that he wants to explore, and then he yeah. kind of fits a romance into that. Yeah, like what if I brought a famous person to dinner? What would my friends do? Mm-hmm. Hold to that. What it's like? What if I would have gone to the the room of that hotel at night with that with that woman? Mm-hmm. i'll create a whole movie about that um what if i did write the beatles music um <laughs> you know i if you have seen the interview with him where he says who that movie was inspired by 
No. Uh, he was at dinner. Mm-hmm. He's at a dinner party with Ed Sheeran. He's apparently very good who's friends the, with Ed Sheeran. In the movie? What's that? Who's he is in the, the movie. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, he, he and they were talking. They were just talking about him being such an average looking dude and and just like he was like what you like you just feel like such a normal guy what does it yeah. feel like for like you woke up one day and you were the biggest selling like british recording artists ever you know yeah. yeah and and he was like i was just trying to think of like some way i could depict that sensation and the only yeah. other thing i could come up with was just if some what if some guy on the street wrote the beatles yeah well, the thing so the, briefly, I'll bring this up too because I don't want to just overshadow this person. But the, it was a diff, there was a different writer as well on this project, uh, called named Jack Barth, and Jack Barth had actually written the movie called Cover Version in 2012, that uh, that basically um, about similar thing with this character. This character start, writes the Beatles songs or whatever because of mm-hmm. all this. I think it was more a little depressing. It sounds like it says it says Jack did not find success with the Beatles song or I think no is the character named Jack let me see yeah basically Jack wasn't successful in his original original version that he doesn't become mm. famous because of the Beatles songs but basically he wrote it um Curtis would hear about it um when he was trying to get clearance rights for Beatles songs on a different project mm. working title had mentioned the screenplay because they had they had passed on it or, or they, they'd had it Curtis uh bought it and rewrote it um Curtis says he'd never read Barth's script and instead just used the premise to write his own version is what it was. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I could say he did that with the Ed Sheeran. Like, what if this happened to this person or whatever? So they just mm-hmm. took the concept and wrote it. Um, but Jack Barth does get story by credit. And nice. apparently at he was 62 when he got story by credit. So he was the oldest person ever to see a feature, a first feature screenplay produced. Uh, <laughs> the previous... The oldest first-time screenwriter before that was Raymond Chandler at 56. Um, <laughs> wow. Apparently, Barth had written 25 unproduced screenplays over 40 years, and mainly did like some TV writing is what it was. So yeah. Um. Anyway, that was kind of a tangent. Um. And what genres does Curtis work with? I think rom-com is kind of your is the go-to. Um, mm-hmm. comedy. So we won't spend too much on that. Too much, too much time on that. Um, all right, final genre questions as we near the end of rom-coms. Um, what are some other films that we didn't talk about that you want to shout out here, Thomas? I mean, the one that, that I bring up to anybody, I think this is probably here at the end of rom-com month. This is probably the best, the absolute best audience to pitch it to. But I am still so, it still makes me so sad that they came together has not found an audience <laughs> as as a film i i think it is one of the funniest comedies to come out in like the 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 late 2010s mm-hmm. um and it just did not find the yeah. audience that it needed and um if you've been following along with us this month if you have been re-watching classic rom-coms for valentine's day it, it is for you it is it is yeah. a when we did our kind of spoof month, we talked a lot about how important it is to kind of love the movies that you're making fun of. And it is a very lovingly crafted spoof of, of every rom-com you've ever seen. And, and, you know, we've been talking so much about tropes this month and, and it's, and it's, I think it's really fun when you are studying a genre, when you're a fan of a genre to see someone else 
who also recognizes the tropes and knows how mm -hmm. to smartly parody them. And I think it is very, very well done in that movie. And it's a great cast. It's uh, Paul Rudd and Amy Poehler in the leads. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's it's hard to find it. It's never sometimes really? occasionally will pop up on like Amazon Prime for streaming. Mm -hmm. And I just recommend it to everyone I can when it when it is streaming. But um, it is it is well worth seeking out if you're a rom-com fan. It's on freebie right now. Oh, there so, you go. You know. So Amazon does still technically still have it. Have it. Yeah. Um, I saw the premiere of this. Did I tell you that? No. I saw the premiere of this at Sundance. This is the year I went to Sundance. And I was, and, and it was, people didn't know how to take it. I will say that <laughs> right now. I think because it was, when you read the synopsis of it, it sounded like it was just going to be a straight romantic comedy mm -hmm. that was just cliche. And it's very much a it's it's a mel brooks i feel like almost like a mel brooks type comedy like kind of making mm -hmm. fun of it but still lovingly is the thing um because then like she works like a, a a small chocolate store or something yeah he's she works a, like a can, big candy systems incorporated yeah, 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 <laughs> big candy so I haven't, I haven't watched it since i saw it 10 years ago so i didn't i didn't love it then but i would be i would be interested to see why yeah, it, every everything we've talked about this month there's a yeah. there's a great scene i was just thinking about when we were watching runaway bride there's like a scene when they're just like walking in a park and she's like she stops and she's like i just want you to know if i were to ever have second thoughts about a wedding right before it were, were to happen and just run away from the church this is the spot where i would come to to process my <laughs> thoughts set up set up for later <laughs> Oh man, uh, I rewatch it. Um, a few that I like, um, Moonstruck is one I would suggest. Mm -hmm. if you, go, you see a great share performance. A, a lot of these I realized we've covered. We've covered um, the apartment. We covered uh, um, Philadelphia Story. We covered Broadcast News. Mm -hmm. um, one we've covered Bull Durham. I'll, I'll, I'll here two I'll suggest. Um, one called Crossing Delancey, which I really mm -hmm. like by Joan McLean Silver. Uh, stars Amy Irving, kind of a really underrated rom-com, very like she works in New York bookstore uh, and her mom uh, or her, her grandmother is trying to set her up with this guy, Peter uh, Rygert, who works like a pickle store, mm. a pickle the shop. Peter Rygert guy. And it's really, it's really charming. It's really great. Um, so if you can find it, check it out. It's not, hasn't been watched by a lot. Joan McLean Silver's got a lot of reappraisal these past few years. One of her other films, uh, Chili Scenes of Winter, I think just got a criterion release maybe is what it is um hester street another another really great she was kind of a, a jewish female filmmaker in the 80s and i think is now being looked at again thankfully because she's passed away at the end of 2020 um so we're checking out another one i wrote briefly about in our weekly recommend and I, i'm not it's not biased because our company that i worked for actually uh, was a producer on this but plus one with jack quaid and my erskine i really really like and if i didn't like it guys i wouldn't tell you even though we did <laughs> i did work at a company that did it um it's worth checking out um it was on hulu for a bit it's not anymore it's on tubi and hoopla um i it's it's kind of a, a really fun modern rom-com of all the stuff we've been talking about and it really had some nice twists has a lot of fun uh, uh zingers and it's worth kind of seeing it's it's and, and especially with my Erskine and Jack Quaid kind of on the rise of late with some of their things, films or, or TV shows they've released or what's coming up. So definitely worth checking out. Um, yeah, on that. And then finally, 
what'd you learn overall thomas about the rom-com this month you know i think it it was nice to come back to all these like i said it's it's always i think if you're a fan of genre it's it's worth it to learn the tropes because then you can learn i think the difference between i, I think sometimes people sent, tend to be like oh it's the same thing here and there that means it's kind of a hack job or whatever and i think yeah. you i think when you're really a fan of the genre and you learn the tropes then you can learn who's playing with the tropes intelligently yeah. who's doing something new with them and who's just recycling and so i think it's worth it's worth watching the ones that you love comparing them you know going back and watching the ones that like maybe weren't as successful uh do like we kind of did in the patreon episode where we called out some that had really good supporting characters but the main romance ultimately didn't work it's you know find the things that you like that worked and um and you know i think you and i are both very hopeful for this genre in the future because yeah. it, it, it it's gone through lulls and and renaissances but it it ultimately i think is a it's a great it's a great source of comedy and it's it's a really good I, I don't think there's any better way to to let two actors shine than to really find two people who have great chemistry and just kind of let them cook i agree so so yeah I, I i've enjoyed kind of diving back into what makes this genre great and and hoping to see more in the future yeah it's a genre that it, it i think it ebbs and flows with culture i, I agree with everything you said about the tropes and all that but there's something i'm seeing i see an article that indywire did and it was kind of talking about how like i think we're kind of now on a little bit of a, a reset with the genre coming up just because i think with streaming coming in streaming just kind of was like let's give you all you've seen kind of before mm -hmm. and i feel like they've been falling into the same issues that happened with the rom-com at the back end of the 2000s Mm -hmm. where they're kind of missing um the point of what makes them work i think yeah I think the article in IndieWire kind of said like we're, we're kind of at the end of like hopefully the self-referential rom-coms where like mm -hmm. it feels like the past few years a lot of the big rom-coms that get on a streaming service or whatever feel like they are looking too much to older films for inspiration and occasionally just name dropping films it's almost like the characters are aware they're in a rom-com mm -hmm. sometimes a little too much um or they at least they've seen all these rom-coms and sometimes it's not gonna work sometimes it can't i think now we're seeing it done a little too much so i think at the end of the day you just have to really i think set it up as a prime example of like what it really is the, ba the base of it or the foundation of it two really charming people falling in love Mm -hmm. and forget everything else is the thing forget the references forget even the crazy kind of hooks to get you into it it's just about two people who are really charming falling in love and that's that's your core yep. so so yeah but that's it on the rom-com series uh be sure to check our patreon we've talked about the our rom-com supporting player hall of fame um I think we were doing music and lyrics as well. It might be coming out later. Uh, so that'll be technically the end of the rom-com series. Um, but yeah, but next month, Thomas, we're doing something else. We're, we're kind of celebrating movies next month, Thomas. Get we your, get we, your we, Oscar nominations ready. Cause we're doing movies on movies. We're doing movies on movies. The Academy doesn't love anything more than a movie about a movie. About making a movie or about mm -hmm. a person who made movies. Um, you're seeing a lot of that right now with the Fablemans or Babylon or anything and everything or well, not that elvis. they make a movie in elvis they do make a movie in elvis they do a tv special technically 
Um, and I mean, even everything all at once does have a section where Michelle Yeoh is an actress and they go to mm -hmm. a premiere. So there's a little bit of that in there. Um, but yeah, we're talking about some big films next month. We're talking about Sunset Boulevard. We're talking about um, Living in Oblivion and we're talking about Eight and a Half. Those are kind of the three planned ones. We got two more coming out. We'll figure that out when we get there. Um, but it's going to be a fun month. We're going to be talking about, we already talked about movies. Now we're talking about movies on movies. It's a weird inception type thing. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that's it for, the, for you on this episode. This movie, this episode will be as long as a Richard Curtis movie. Exactly. Like. Um, <laughs> that's what I was thinking when I was watching uh, the runtime. Um, but yeah, if you have any questions for us, feel free to contact us at nation podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, nice things, whatever. Um, and if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so. You can subscribe to our show on our podcast, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. We're just two podcasters standing in front of our listeners, asking them to review us. Asking asking us to love love us. Asking <laughs> you to love us. Please love us. I'm asking uh, you to tell other people how much you love us. That's exactly, yeah. Uh, be the good friends that we need in our lives. You're part of our good close-knit friend group and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram letterbox and tiktok thomas as always thank you for joining me thank you for having me and thank you all for listening we hope to listen to more episodes soon bye